What do these things want? Why are they here? You still don't get it, do you, boy? They have recruited the rich and the powerful. They're running the whole show. Wake up! They're all about you, all around you. Blinded us to the truth. Take a look. They are safe as long as they are not discovered. I don't know what they are or where they came from, but we gotta stop them. Stay away from me. Put these on. They have us. Look at them. They're everywhere. I have come here to chew bubblegum and kick And I'm all out of bubblegum. Okay, welcome to Movie Night Extravaganza, episode 48, They Live, talking about John Carpenter, talking about our good old boy, Ronnie Reagan, talking about Zizek and the trash can of ideology, and uh, probably many, many other uh, topics. I am here um, with, a, with a skeleton crew tonight. Um, <laughs> you know, I am the skeleton. <laughs> protonic reversal. You know him from that. You know him from Conan Neutron and the Secret Friends. Conan Neutron. And yes, yes, I'm indeed. Surprised you're not wearing sunglasses, by the way. That oh been... gosh, that would have been that would have been a good move, huh? <laughs> well, I actually have a pair that looks quite a bit like the pair that are in this film. But I, uh, what can I say? Holidays got me slacking a little bit. But uh, yeah, I love this movie. They lives awesome. Uh, big Carpenter fan, pretty much, pretty much all around. But this is obviously sailing and pointing in ways that some of the other ones aren't and uh, still holds up despite being like just kind of also pretty bizarre. So I'm very excited to talk about this one. Watch it again uh, last night. And that's maybe the 20th time I've seen it. But <laughs> And we're also joined by JG Michael of Parallax Views, the great podcast. The three of us are going to be, um, uh, I don't know, is it next week? The fifth, I, I, my days are all fucked up. <laughs> if you don't know, I don't know. I think it's next week, isn't it? Because this is yeah. still December. Yeah, it's so, next week. Yeah. So network. next Wednesday, the three of us are going to be talking on This Is Revolution about uh, Network, which should be a, a fun conversation. So this kind of feels like almost like a pregame for that. Um, yeah, it's possibly one of my, it's possibly my favorite movie of all time and certainly in the top three. So that, that should be exciting. I remember uh, JG made me promise a while back when we when we did JFK. He made me promise that if we did network at any point, uh, he would be on the he would be on the panel. And at the yes, time, that, that was like, that was during the infancy of uh, movie night extravaganza. Now you're yeah. at almost fifty episodes. I know this yeah, is this looks crazy. We're gonna be on. We're gonna hit fifty episodes on uh, New Year's Eve, which you know. I mean, I don't know if that's uh, exciting or if it's sad that I don't have plans for New Year's Eve and I'm <laughs> going to be streaming on Twitch. But <laughs> well, look, uh, you know, during Omicron surge, like I would call it, 
I would call it safe fun to, to be able to do that. But really? and also, that's an incredible achievement. That that shouldn't be something we just blast past. I mean, that's some protonic reversal numbers. That that's like that's a lot of episodes for like yeah, what, this, six uh, months. This, this show been around. This has been a, a podcast juggernaut. I think yeah. more than more than anything else I've really even worked on. I mean, you know, I I think it took I think it took like GTA like almost like a year to get to fifty, or it took them a while. Mm-hmm. Um. So I want to I want to start with this. Uh, usually I start with like I would start with John Carpenter talking about this movie, but this is like a five minute clip, and it's um it's Roddy Piper and Keith David talking about uh, filming the fight. And I, I guess originally they wanted to have like a twenty second fight. I was looking at the uh, awesome. Uh, I'm, I'm sure JD knows knows about this. I, I I thought you I well I wanted to say I thought you were you were about to say that you were going to show the clip of Roddy Piper talking about they live on the Alex Jones show. But. Oh well, yeah. I, I, I didn't want to. I didn't want to give. I didn't want to give play to that. But no, um, no, no. I'm gonna derail kidding. that immediately. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> this is this is a panel. It's a um, it's a horror panel, I think, and it's uh, Keith David and Roddy Piper are both on it, talking about the process of. Well, Meg Foster's also on it, but apparently doesn't talk throughout this panel because I watched the entire thing. And she didn't say one word. But um, this is this is talking about the fight, and I guess originally John Carpenter wanted to just kind of do like a. You know, like a, a standard, um, like a like a movie fight where it's like you know, like a minute or something. I think maybe even twenty seconds, and they just fight, and he puts on the glasses, and it's like, oh, cool. But then I guess they choreographed this, you know, their like ten minute long fucking fight, and actually ended up like beating the shit out of each other in the process of it, and uh, like somewhat by accident, somewhat on purpose, I think, um, just really going at it. It's and, so uh, good too. It's 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 so. It's it, it goes from being ridiculous to unbearable to awesome, back to ridiculous, back to unbearable, back to being awesome at least three times. Like it, it's, yeah. it's there's 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 nothing like this in film. Like this would if that was a short film, it would be like cited as like one of the best art films of all time. Just <laughs> just to fight, no context, just fighting over the glasses, right? Well, and and then my my note that I wrote down is like it's literal class struggle, like you know what I mean, like trying to get someone to be class conscious within the working class, and you know, in the process of not wanting, like not wanting to give up on the American dream, quote unquote, not wanting to give up right. on their position within you know the class structure, end up beating the shit out of them, <laughs> like uh, you know, rhetorically or physically, you know, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's like the it's the it's the literal physical embodiment of class struggle. So I I appreciate it on that level too. Um, also was remade in uh uh South Park. Yeah. <laughs> I take your word for it. I'm going to I'm going to guess that they didn't fully get the uh the context of they live because Yeah, you know. I, I, yeah, I don't I don't think Matt and Trey would, but <laughs> Uh it was the most fun I've ever had. Uh, I mean, I'm I'm I'm, I'm working with Roddy Mike. And pound for pound, the strongest man I've ever come across. I mean, he used to, there was a, there was a move. We, first of all, we rehearsed for two weeks, which was great. Jeff Amato was the uh, coordinator. And he was wonderful. I mean, I mean, you know, it was, it, you know, it's choreography. So um, our job is to sell it, to make it look like it was real. And who's, who better to work with than him? I mean, it was that part was great. I'm just, I'm just had to work up my chops and go, man, I want to do it like him, you know. Uh, 
but we were, you know, and I do remember the night we, it, right before, it was three days of filming, and we rehearsed for three, two weeks, up to the three days. And the night before we were to start that filming, E.T. came to film us. And we had always, up until then, except for maybe in the very beginning, uh, I mean, when you fit, when you you know, choreographing for fights on film, it's all about angles. Because you can literally, I can be 10 feet away from somebody, and if the camera's behind me and you swing right and they react right, it looks like I hit it. So it's always about the distance. That was always being stressed. He never hit me, and I almost never hit him. <laughs> except for the except for that night, as soon as as soon as the camera rolled for ET, the first move was I you know punch him in the face, and where and and where am I standing? But too close, and I go bang, and I go, oh shit, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. And he goes, oh, it's okay, it's okay, I just started it. I was so embarrassed because because I just finished telling the guy. No, he never hurt me. He's always been safe. You know, been safe to him. He never got hurt. And boom! But I mean, it was uh, but it was some of the most fun I ever had because you know we really got to we really got to play. I mean, it was it was great stuff. Man. You know, we got to sell it, and I learned a few moves. So don't miss me. <laughs> All right, I want to hear your side of this story. <laughs> Um, well, like Keith is a 220 pound dancer, he hits like Mike Tyson doesn't even know it. <laughs> he is extraordinary. Um, an uh, incredible guy. I guess maybe from, from dancing, and you've got to be really strong to do that. He's a really, really strong guy. <laughs> really strong. And, um, and he hits really, really hard. <laughs> and thinks he's pulling him. <laughs> Glad you never met Hogan. <laughs> so, um, because I, to remember everything, I've been doing it for so long, to remember everything like he did, extraordinary. What, I think one of the things that helped the fight out was <clears throat> Instead of shooting a fight in the traditional sense where they do a couple things and break it down, do a couple breakdown, John let us kind of okay, we're starting, and we went as far as we could, and that that gets an energy. And when you know when Keith's hitting me in the tummy, I says just it's okay. Go ahead, you know it's okay, Keith. And like he's such a pro. I don't know of any other actor, especially as a little difficult to handle back then. So here, and um, you know, to hang, to hang in there, because I've been fighting Andre the Giant, Victor the Bear, 650-pound fucking bear named Victor, like, <laughs> like he needed a name. I am a bear, I'm Victor. No, I'll remember you. <laughs> so by the time I got to Keith, you know, I was kind of a tough piece of meat. And uh, 
<laughs> no, and uh, I don't blame you. I get tired too. <laughs> but I, you did really well, and just go ahead. Uh, yeah, good. Just good. What an asshole. No, you wouldn't believe the guy like to fucking kill you. So many fucking punches and the punches go. Yeah, you miss this way, but kicks me in the eye, coming back with a thumb. Like fuck, man, let's just go as far as we can. Fucking <laughs> so like three rolls into it, you know. Yeah, everything's hurting on me, and he's happy, you know. <laughs> and I'm beating the shit out of Roddy Piper. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, I just, just put the glasses on, you know. <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome he's he's oh you put the glasses on i put on the hey i heard about this fight you think i want to get involved in this i do not <laughs> but you can tell i love i love you could tell number one they had a lot of fun doing it but i also like the, that you can see like the wrestler uh the wrestler like hamming it up coming out in the middle of his explanation because he starts off like you know he's explaining it and as the crowd starts to build He's like, by the end of it, he's like, he's, you know, oh, I'm having fun. Like, you know what I mean? Like, you could tell it, you could see his ramping up that, like, I feel like only really comes out of that wrestling world where once you see that the crowd is on your side, like, you're willing to fully build up your <laughs> your story. 100%. And and I like the fact that they, they knew how over the top it was and they kind of leaned into it, right? Like, I think it makes... It, it makes that scene even for people that like maybe don't get the movie or don't care for it as like a film they like more social commentary it's impossible to ignore that th there is there is again like i talked about earlier basically a short film of dudes fighting over whether the, somebody will or will not put on the glasses yeah right i mean like it, it goes on like it goes on for so long and every time i see it i'm like ah yeah yeah that was a lot i was like oh there's more jesus they're still fighting over this huh it's amazing there's nothing like that I, I love I love when they get into the uh, the part of it where he's like just hitting his head off the car and then yeah. they both and then he has the bottle and he breaks the bottle and fucking yeah. he breaks the bottle though too much you know what I mean like goes to crack yeah. it and then and then Roddy Piper just starts laughing at him for like breaking the bottle too much because obviously he can't use it as a weapon now <laughs> and then he's and Keith David's about to step on the glasses and he's like no and he like basically gets kneed in the face for the efforts I mean like you could we could have, look we could do a whole podcast just about that fight scene I feel like we are so far but anyway what do you think JJ Michael I mean the fight scene's classic I, I don't know what else to add to it though because it's so, like I said it's so uh it's so iconic you know I mean when you've uh had a fight from they live recreated in uh who are the two characters timmy and the other kid in, in south park i keep coming back to that but uh i mean it's it's everywhere i mean it's become a pop cultural sort of um oh isn't it isn't it timmy and uh the 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 kid with the with the crutches that's the yes yeah yeah, yeah yeah that's the one where they, yeah. they recreate the whole yeah but uh i mean that that goes for the whole movie too i mean the movie is referenced everywhere now so I mean, what, who was um, that artist? Um, Shepard Fury does the Obey art or whatever, right? Yeah, yeah. That that's where that's where his whole brand came from. It started yeah. off with you know, it started off with Andre the Giant has a posse, and you know, kind of went from there. But yeah, by Obey the way, Giant. And by the way, if, if barking starts in the background, I mean, she's good right now. But apparently, Audrey's figured out how to open doors. She's opened, she's opened the door to this to the to the basement twice already during this podcast. But um, 
canine yeah. collaborator. <laughs> so, so, so building on this conversation though, I mean, the political implications of this movie, I, I do think it's funny that, you know, during this whole uh, COVID thing, especially it's been kind of parroted by, uh, by right wing, you know, hacks. And I mean, like Alex Jones is a perfect example of it. Like it's Q know. people. Let's call it what it is. It's the Q people. They, they that's 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 the. It, but by the way, the only reason I mentioned the Alex Jones thing was because Roddy Piper was messing with him the whole interview, like mm -hmm. saying, "Yeah, wrestling is real. It's like a shoot fight when I wrestle," which I just <laughs> find to be the most hilarious thing ever. He's just working this, you know, jerk. <laughs> so it's uh, I I I I really I like him a lot, and. When I when I think of Roddy Piper, the first thing I think about is um when he's the maniac on uh on It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia mm -hmm. when he just ends up be, like following them back to the bar and not leaving. <laughs> he's like, listen, I uh, I I need a, I need a place to stay and uh right right and that's I guess all of that is almost entirely improv. Um, that and it's big on. like the wrestler vibes, like the movie, yeah. like you know, in that way. But in, in a way, it's played for comedy as It's Always Sunny does so well. But I think that again. A lot of the QAnon idiots like hitched on this thinking that like, oh, did you see that documentary? They live, but they <laughs> hitched on the most facile elements, ignored the class part of it and really only got down with the sort of reptilian shapeshifters, right. you know, most maniac what, parts of their of the ethos. It, it starts with like David Icke and his crazy. Yeah. -ness, and then, you know, the QAnon people pick it up and here we are. And a lot it, of the a lot of the right really have appropriated the image of uh you know, uh, what, what's his, what's the character's name? John Nada, uh, John Nada, which is such a perfect uh, name. It is a, it's Nada, a pretty tough name. Nothingness, yeah. you, know, <laughs> exactly. air, you know, the drifter. Uh, I, I mean, I could see. I guess I I don't know. Why do you think the right has picked up on uh, this movie? But it, it, here's the thing: it's not anything subtle. It's just because hey, there's like there's something that's keeping us specifically down. And we can't see it, but like, oh, if you're into like our thing, then you can see it. it's as simple as that. Like, there's no nuance to it at all. The thing is, they're actively ignoring the class part of it. They're actively ignoring the actual message. It spends like 40 minutes talking about before like the action even gets going. That all is just well, that that's accessless dropped because yeah. it doesn't fit fit the narrative. What they what they see is like, oh, there's people controlling things in this case like whatever, globalists, right? That's and, what and, all and, the and there's uh the the working class white man that has to stop them. I think they like right. that maybe. And they see that uh, not ascribed to any kind of like classification theory, but they see themselves Yeah, they don't they don't see the Keith David character and him teaming up. Yeah. No, they, they, that that doesn't matter. That's again, access list dropped. Right. But they see, but the thing is these guys who are, you know, like whatever I could, I could use it. I could lose a few pounds myself, but these guys are like 50, 60 pounds overweight. will charitably say wearing like, you know, flip flops into Applebee's or whatnot. And they think they're Rowdy Roddy Piper. They are not Rowdy Roddy Piper to be explicitly freaking clear in any way, shape or form. But that's who they see. They see themselves in that, but they're missing any of the nuance that like a child. Cause let's, let's be clear that QAnon conspiracy bullshit it's all very childlike. Like it's almost like a willful disassociation from reality because it's too much to understand that the world has moved on without you. Like they can't, they can't process that. So they can't process that they bought into this fantasy, which on the face of it is completely does not hold up to the barest iota of scrutiny. I mean, but it makes, even, them, even it makes them feel good. This is your I'm not going to let you talk over the end point. It makes them feel good. <laughs> That's why. I, I was going to say they even have to ignore the fact that, I mean, uh, you know, there's the the 
uh, Episcopalian church in it that's a friend to the revolutionary group. Way. It's a black revolutionary <laughs> group. Um, Cy yeah. Richardson is is yeah. credited as the black revolutionary in the movie. Uh, it, it, and I mean, um, uh, Raymond St. Jock's character, actually, the preacher, talks about racial injustice and, yeah. and, and these things. Well, yeah. because, I mean, they're intrinsic. It's, inter it's intersectional uh, class solidarity. Yeah, which is, which is right? what class solidarity has to be, right? Like, it's not like... It's not like classes stop when it comes to the racial line. Like it's the same, you know, it's the same classes, like, you know, it's the same class system, no matter what, what race you are, wherever, wherever you fall on, you know, any kind of uh, spectrum. The, re the reason that I'm bringing this up though, is because um, I think that during the, you know, coronavirus specifically, and I, and I definitely want to get you guys' thoughts on this, but um, when, so I've, whenever I log into Facebook, like half the people I, I see on there are, are doing like, COVID doesn't exist. Uh, conspiracy. Plandemic, plandemic, brother. It's a plandemic. Yeah. <laughs> but like when you when you look into why they feel like it doesn't exist or what they think the end goal of it existing is, it's just the obey part of it, right? With no yeah. uh, no critique of capital, no critique of of why um, certain certain parts of capital would want to push certain uh, elements of the pandemic. I guess like there's no. It just goes as far as the government wants to control you. The government it's, it's, wants to control you um, because wait, I just just let me just let me uh, flesh this out. The government yeah. wants to control you because they crave power. And when they control you, they get off on it or something like, you know what I mean? Like it doesn't there's no critique of, of capital. It's it's the fact that the government itself wants to control you for the sake of controlling you, whatever they, they don't. There's no plan beyond that. Um, they just want the population controlled and, and, and mellow, which is kind of half of the, what this movie is saying. But then the other half is why do they want everybody, you know, it's because they want to extract resources. It's because they want to use this as basically their third world. You know what I mean? Like they explicitly say that in this, which the same way that we use uh, Central America, the same way that we use Africa, the same way that we use, you know, the poorer parts of, uh, of Asia that aren't, I guess, the, the reason that we're so upset about China, you know, being the second superpower is that parts of, uh, Asia, Asia that would be in our orbit and parts of Africa that would be in our orbit, you know, that we could do full on resource extra extraction comes within the uh, economic purview of a different superpower at that point. So it's it's really interesting that, you know, there's no like grabbing onto this movie, the, the obey part, I think, is kept mm -hmm. like. The government yeah, but that's it, but none of the new ones, though. Yeah, but no, else but, but, yeah. but without, without the, the critique of capital, without the critique of Reaganism, that's clearly there throughout the entire mm -hmm. fucking movie, that's the point. You know what I mean? Like, without all mm -hmm. these things where, and I have a, a clip to play um, after this conversation where uh, John Carpenter is kind of, I mean, it's funny that John Carpenter is kind of just like a, um, I mean, he's the good kind of lib, but he is, like, he's, he's like a left lib, like he's a FDR liberal, like, you know what I mean? Like he he's outraged. He, he may be an FDR liberal, but I think he may have sympathies for. I mean, he has at least like two different movies where revolutionaries are depicted. As no, I, I don't. He's, I'm just, <laughs> he's sufficiently radicalized in his yeah. way. I, like, I'm not. The reason thing. that the reason that I'm I'm saying that is because I have a clip where he's talking about how he was pissed off that the welfare state. He like you know what I mean? Like the 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 gains that we made under the New Deal were just completely decimated by Reagan. Yeah. And he was upset yeah. that, you know, and he talks about Carter in this, you know, kind of 
uh, giving us the hint that, um, which I, I, you know, this is not where my politics are, but it is something that I am, I'm sympathetic towards this kind of liberal where it's like, you know, you're upset about, you know, Reagan drowning, like draining the welfare state of all its potency, upset about all of these programs that are going to help, you know, um, you know, poor people actually get empowered, actually kind of create a, a, a life that has dignity and where they can actually, you know, be upwardly mobile. He's upset that all of this stuff is drained by Reaganism and wanted to make a movie about it. And that's basically his thesis that he puts out there. Um, so, yeah, I, I I don't know. It's just, it's interesting that in order to you have to ignore all of those parts uh, if you're, if you're was, on the right. And so just, there's two major yeah, there's two major points. So why don't I let J.G. Michael kind of chime in before we watch that? No, I just wanted to say real quickly, I think this happens with a number of genre films. Uh, the, the movie that immediately comes to mind when I hear um, movies that get misinterpreted or reinterpreted by the right. I think of this movie, and I also think of um, Joel Schumacher's Falling Down, because people explicitly, uh, or just, they completely ignore that in Falling Down, the Michael Douglas character is going home to family annihilate. That's pretty heavily implied in the movie. Uh, and, you know, you're not supposed to think, oh, Michael Douglas is the hero, but a lot of people I know, especially suburbanites that watch that, are like, oh, yeah, yeah he's, I like him. You know, he he doesn't get the the hamburger the way it looks on the 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 screen the the McDonald's. He's justified. Society pushed him over the edge when really Schumacher was saying, "No, this this dude's a jerk. He's a dick. Um, he's, he's, yeah. he's, 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 this guy is the problem." Yes, exactly. but it, it's interesting because there's quite a few movies I think like that that get get reinterpreted or misinterpreted by the right. Yeah. Well, they look at like a character that's a clear anti-hero, clearly a cautionary tale, and they look at like here's a way to be. Like, no, that is not a way to be. That that is not like a role model for you to emulate. Well, this well, is meant to be a cautionary tale. That's the interesting also, thing. It's about, allegory. That's the interesting <laughs> thing about the Roddy Piper character too, right? Because I mean, I Piper isn't Piper's character, John Nauta, isn't like a violent man. Uh, he's sort of a pacifist, and he only goes into uh, violence when he feels it's absolutely necessary. And the only um, and the only people that he kills are the aliens. Like you know what I mean? Like he doesn't. That's true. He goes, he he goes out of his go. way. He bends over backwards not to kill any human beings. Yep. Like in any way. Like even the two cops who they said some of the cops aren't um, are just humans that have linked up with with the aliens, and some of them are the the two cops that he kills are the alien ones. Like they're like, hey, we got to talk about this. You know, come. Which is the classic cop line, right? Like where they're like, listen, buddy. Like why don't we just have a conversation about this somewhere else? And then you put down the gun and they fucking you know kill you in the car but it, it's i know he's not keith david he wouldn't do that no <laughs> <laughs> by the way there's uh, a, so, so i guess they live was at number one like in the entire country for for movies at the box office for two it came weeks. out uh i don't know if you guys knew this now maybe, maybe you did but i believe it came out eight days before the election they elected hw bush president that's true yes I, I didn't know that, but that timeline definitely makes sense. Michael Dukakis, they still talked about him in the tank, and like that's why he lost as big as he did, you know, like <laughs> that, that and Willie Horton, which again was just like standard issue um, race baiting by uh, what's his yeah. Name? Well, I mean the Sorry, Bushes have a, the Bushes have an extremely long race baiting history, and that's kind of the uh, one of the that most... was at, I believe that was Atwater, if I remember correctly. It's it's been a while, but I believe that was an Atwater joint. Willie Horton isn't wasn't it also? I, I can't remember if it was. I can't remember if it was Mondale or if it was, uh, or or if it was Dukakis, but wasn't there also like an anti-death uh, penalty stance? And then, yeah, 
the 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 thing was like, oh well, what would happen if you know your wife was was raped by somebody? Yeah, when, that, that, that that was that was Willie Horton. That that was yeah. I I'm old enough that I I remember I remember it. I didn't understand any of the context for it, but I'm old enough that I do remember that. Like where I was, I was like, I, you know, I was like whatever nine. Well, because the, the Willie Horton thing was specifically that you know he wanted to. Well, there were some uh, uh, people that were criminals that were getting kind of a like weekend passes, which I think is something yeah. that if you're really going to rebuild people's, um, really, if you if you really do want to reintegrate people in prison to society, is something that's necessary, right? Like going into society at some point is a necessary part of of, of that process. But uh, yeah, I, those two things were kind of tied together. I don't know. But the idea was the carceral oh. state versus any kind of uh, you know rehabilitation or anything. Yeah. Like the idea was well, these liberals, these you know elitist northeastern liberals are doing this. Do you really want them running the country? And I, I, I'm trying to start frankly look this up to see if that was the case. It was definitely Dukakis and idiot. But I'm trying. I'm trying to remember what the. Pl- I, I want to say it was Lee Atwater who did that. It might have been a young Carl Rove even at that point, but. Um, I'm pretty sure it was Lee Otwater and his team that did that. And it was devastatingly effective because much people focus yeah. on Dukakis and the tank. It wasn't Dukakis and the tank that made him look foolish. Like, by the way, I do that actually serve. We'll start. But like, uh, like, I think that that hit upon a certain amount of just racial panic that was happening around that time too, as well as, you know, like, especially in areas where there was that big pushback that eventually led to Giuliani, like coming to power in New York, things along those lines that like, there was basically all this idea of, Hey, what if we get them working on the other rather, you know, than, than like uh, realizing they have more in common amongst themselves and with us. And, and that's so key to understanding what Carpenter, I think, was trying to do here. I mean, it's, I, it's not like he was subtle about it, right? Like, it was pretty explicit. I, th- this is where I get to mention the uh, my, my, one of my favorite little notes of trivia about this movie. And I mentioned it to Conan earlier before yeah. we came on. But everyone thinks that the uh, the aliens are, are called aliens in the script or the, the credits, uh, the reptilians, whatever. They're actually referred to, I believe, in the script, and I know they're referred to this in the credits as ghouls. And I, I thought of that because you said Rudy Goliani. Yeah, um, exactly. I think that's <laughs> apropos that they're described by Carpenter as the ghouls. Ghouls, yeah. You know. Well, I can't remember if it was Invasion of the Body Snatchers or if it was um, like a, a different older uh, sci-fi movie. But are, weren't there weren't there multiple um, sci-fi movies? Like in the in the fifties, which this movie is based on Invasion of the Body Snatchers. Like that's where John Carpenter kind of mm-hmm. got his not not the seventies one, but the the fifties one. That's like one of the major places that uh, John Carpenter, which it, a, a lot of a lot of sci fi movies, I think, were inspired by the uh, the fifties version of Invasion of the Body Snatchers. But um, I was watching him talk in an interview about how you know he was really really into monster movies and like all of these you know all all of these movies that are like um, that are like that movie, but it, he was really inspired for this by um, invasion of the body snatchers. So, you know, ghouls ghouls was like a common term for monsters. I think um, in, in that era. Well, ghouls can also uh, have a different connotation politically. <laughs> yeah. No, I know, and I use it all the fucking time politically to talk about like the worst elements of the Republican Party, like fascists and like the neocons and the fucking uh, like the the military state. AKA all them suckers. And AKA spooks is another, like, you know, another one of those like terms for somebody who's worked out of the deep state for <laughs> like, like HW Bush, like, you know what I mean? Like the actual um, like embodiment of the post post Nixon CIA. <laughs> 
So um, I, I wanted to, so I, I actually wanted to ask your opinion on something before you go to the, um, the next clip. One of the things that really struck me when I rewatched this is that whole opening intro. So, I mean, we could get into it after the clip, but I, I thought it was interesting. First, there's a lot of imagery that reminds me of old Westerns throughout this movie, but that opening in particular, when John Nauta is just coming in to, uh, to LA, basically, I believe it mm -hmm. takes place in LA. Um, when he's first coming there and you see him going through Skid Row and you have that bluesy sort of music playing. Which I, plays throughout the whole movie. It's like, such, but, it, but it's a really yeah. powerful uh, opening for me because I feel like, like Carpenter's portraying a sort of dystopian side to the, you know, dream of, of California, the California dream, LA, Hollywood, you know, yeah. he's showing a more dystopian side to it. And I, I think that's a really powerful image to start the film off with. I don't know what you guys think of that though. Yeah. I, and I agree. And then, you know, it's interesting that one of the first things you hear is the woman on the PA system that's like, oh, due to a computer error, which the computer right. part of it comes in later on. And she's like, due to a computer error, um, we no longer give out food stamps. Um, you right. know, which, you know, which, which kind of um, immediately jars you into kind of, this is a political, this is a political satire. This is a political right. movie with implications that have to do with the real world at this time period that aren't just, you know, it's not just sci-fi. <laughs> You good, Conan? Are you are you are you are you tripping out on discovering the truth? I, I'm 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 playing the baseline. Yeah, and that plays yeah, throughout the entire thing. It's, it's a it's 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 a, it's it's such a stereotypical blues riff, but it's like, what's the blues? Hey, I'm down on my luck. You know, the man, the man won't let me. Blah blah blah. But yeah, it's 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 brilliant. It's brilliant in simplicity. You know what I heard about the blues? You know, I heard that if you're from Long Island, you know, there's ain't no blues man from Long Island. I was gonna say it's it's arguably depicts the blues better than Crossroads. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> maybe that gag work, oh. maybe it didn't. But it was no actually it's pointed out to me by Lindsay when we watched this. It was it was like it's like I think she's like, I think I even can play that bass line. I'm like, Yeah, you probably could. <laughs> Go ahead. I wasn't meaning well, to distract. I was just trying to a big part of snack. one of the reasons that I find John Carpenter one of the most inspiring directors as somebody that wants to be um like a filmmaker. Those glasses have quite the effect. Go ahead. As someone who spent their life like wanting to be a filmmaker, one of the most inspiring things about John Carpenter is that he's able to keep like costs down on all of these movies by number one, just being an amazing person to come up with a with a score, right? Like he he can come up with a score that lasts for the entire movie. He's great at that. Like that's his his you know thing that he chant like. And he always that. attributes it to uh, just smoking weed too. He's humble about it. <laughs> I came and, up with that synth when I was high. Well, sure, and, and yeah, yeah, and he's very, he's very opaque about that. I, I just, I do want to use this opportunity as my platform as the resident musician on the show to say that uh, the active use of drugs does not create creativity; it only allows people to better communicate with it. And I think that you know, it only it, it enhances the natural creativity that somebody like John Carpenter would have. It like, removes the, the distractions, and I think it's yeah. it's often used as a substitute. For creativity and it's often attributed to uh narcotics and illicit substance and it's not true and, and i would like to see more of that in filmmaking uh that said he smokes a lot of weed and he plays a lot of video games and we all know that and we love him for it and he's also a great musician like we've talked about this on like what was it uh, uh big trouble in little china or like halloween like tony who's coming on for uh predator went and saw him play 
And it was great. He was like, it was fucking awesome. It wasn't just good. It was fucking awesome. Like he was, he's really good. Like it, it the songs work. We you had a we had a thirty minute conversation about this, and I remember this because I had to trouble on the, um, the the murder night wrap up. We talked about this for like forty five minutes, and I had to cut most of it out because I was like, wow. that's, that's, that's one fifth of our entire show." But uh, this is so this no. is the political this is the political side. But anyway, yeah, yeah. The, the, the point of fact is that, you, that yeah, like like I think that soundtrack is perfect. Like I think that soundtrack is perfect for trying to body, especially the the first sort of third of the movie. The, the down on your luck, like, you know, hey, where am I going to go in this unfeeling world? Kind of, kind of, it's perfect. It's awesome. I mean, he, he's, he's so good at it. It's one of the reasons why, like, he's respected as a musician as well as a filmmaker. You know, it's great. And it's funny that, you know, there's so much in this movie that the score is what he gets asked about the least, I think, because I've, I've watched multiple interviews with him and people don't even like, and I'm like watching it. And after our conversations about John Carpenter, like I, I definitely thought about like, hey, this score like that repeats for pretty much the entire movie. It's good as fuck. But every every interview is they're like, oh, well, do you want to talk about the political implications of it and right. filming it? Like the process of kind of, I guess it was one guy that played every single one of the aliens. Um, once he put the glasses on, so the same stunt man played all of the aliens, which is just like a fascinating tidbit. And and watching it again, did he get paid the same? Did he get paid for one role or did he get paid for like forty? <laughs> Well, you know, when he played when he played women, they paid him a little less. And, you know, hey, yeah, <laughs> that's funny because it's true. Anyway, you got a clip to play, right? Yeah. <laughs> Movie I made towards the end of the '80s, and I was reflecting on a lot of the values that I saw around me at the time, mainly inspired by Ronald Reagan's conservative revolution. There was a great deal of obsession with greed and making a lot of money. And some of the values that I grew up with had been pushed aside. So I decided to scream out in the middle of the night and make a statement about that. And They Live is partially a political statement. It's partially uh, a tract on the world that we live in today. And as a matter of fact, right now, it's even more true than it was then. Uh, we are manipulated by a lot of media around us. We are consumed by consumerism. And uh, as you can see, the recent events in this country, they are still among us. They do live, indeed. The 80s never ended. The Reagan Revolution never ended. Although there is now a pull towards the left. Mm -hmm. I, would, I admit that. The right is, in this country, the right is confused and lost. But they may win. They may win, and oh, what they want to do is beyond Reagan. You know, they've moved so far to the right. Mm -hmm. And it's really unrestrained capitalism that I'm criticizing. I'm, I'm a capitalist. I love capitalism. I love making money. But unrestrained capitalism is, a, is leads to depressions. It leads to the recession that we have. Mm -hmm. So the 80s never ended. They're still here. They're still on Earth exploiting us. We just need the glasses. No, we do. More than ever. <laughs> do you think the film has... Um, still some relevant social commentary? Oh, that's never ended. That's still with us. They Live is, is a documentary about what's going on now. Relevance, of course. Yeah, it's still here. Here's, here's my philosophy on it. I'll just tell you. I think Ronald Reagan, along with the, your, your gal there, Iron Lady Thatcher, 
came came into into power by saying government was a problem. That's an absolute lie. Good government is a solution. Bad government is a problem. Not government. That's all it is. Basically, what our spin on the story was that all the aliens are members of the upper class, the rich, and they're slowly exploiting the middle class and everybody's becoming poor and everything we think about buying cars and having pools and, and uh, condos and all the things that everybody strives for in America basically are, are created by this race of uh, inhuman creatures that really just want to exploit us like a third world. And it's told from the point of view of the homeless. So um, it has a kind of a theme and a message to it, but basically it's an action film. Fair enough. Also, I think that the whole good government thing, it makes me wonder, was he like a Warren dude? <laughs> well, he, I, I'm, I'm serious. Well, I mean, I could see him going Sanders. I could see him going Warren. I could see him being like, no, it's Andrew Yang or something. like. Carpenter. Well, here's the thing. No, I, I think. I, <laughs> here's I think the thing, he, people. <laughs> I'm John Carpenter. Here's the thing. Um, <laughs> I, you got to put know, on I, these glasses or you're going to eat that trash can. <laughs> <laughs> Elizabeth Warren in They Live. Holy shit. Imagine that whole fight scene was fucking Elizabeth Warren just, just fucking. Oh god. <laughs> put on put on the glasses. Just put them on. You can see the government. You can see everything is about regulation. No, I'm not putting on the glasses. I'm not gonna do it. Here's your week's pay. I got that for you. Now get out of my face. <laughs> um, I know. I think he'd be a Bernie guy. One one thing that I think is uh, one thing that I think is really interesting that I noticed watching it um, a second time, and I've only I only noticed this because I've listened to so much fucking folk music lately, um, like Pete Seeger and stuff. But he uses the phrase, um, he's like, my my father taught me all about the power and the glory, which is you know the famous folk song about you know how America could be. Um, like kind of if if like the the New Deal and if if the working class was empowered, like the power and the glory is is that song, and I feel like throughout this is kind of uh, littered with references to like you know welfare programs, the expansion of the welfare state, which is which makes it kind of funny that it's you know um, like the glasses get put on and, and the central message of the film really is about you know empowering like a like a social democracy. Although, you know, that that word is never used and like empowering like the welfare state rather than kind of just being like, listen, government is bullshit, which is the way that, you know, the right takes it. Um, I was going to say that the uh, that line where Piper is 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 in the room with uh, Keith David after they fought and uh, you reference the line he has there about, you know, he says, my daddy took me down to the river Uh told me about the power and the glory kicked my ass and um saved me i think is what he says after that then he goes on to talk about his how his dad changed you know and became like mean and sort of cruel and coarse and uh how he ran away it really ties into like the the broader sort of message about the the death of certain values and uh you know i i don't know if you had any thoughts on that i thought that was a good little like mini monologue from him in the movie that gets overlooked a lot yeah no it definitely is and and i i think that um 
when when I, when I talk about like the power and the glory, like that that part of it, it's it's kind of the death of these uh, Rooseveltian values, right? Like um, the working class needs to be uplifted, kind of like I, I've been listening to the Matt Chrisman um, uh, Hell of Presidents. So it was interesting list, watching this movie and listening to that kind of simultaneously. But um, they they talk about how you know when Roosevelt ran for president, uh, one of the signs that people had seen was like you know the president knows that your boss is a son of a bitch, was like one of the pro Roosevelt signs, and it's kind of this this you know this back away from a, a class consciousness that kind of brings you in, into the fold and makes you realize that as a working person, you're connected in solidarity with all of these other working people. You know what I mean? Like, and and I think. Uh, Keith David perfectly represents that. And I think the struggle that, you know, Keith David has where he's like, I just want to keep my head down. I finally have a job. Like I I've been struggling. I finally want to keep my head down um, and just, you know, and just work and not bother anybody. And, you know, the whole fight scene erupts and it's over kind of learning the truth and being enlightened on the fact that, you know, when you do keep your head down and then this, 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 this comment is made throughout the entire film um, when they're talking about, you know, this individual need to just take care of yourself and fuck everybody over. And, you know, um, all of a sudden, well, even, you know, even I, I was just going to add, even in a way at the beginning, Piper almost believes in a version of that. It's a little bit less cruel, but he says, you know, Oh, I, I believe in America. I believe in the American dream to Keith David. And a lot of the movie is really him coming to realize, Oh, I've been fed a pack of lies. Yeah. And, but, but then also at the same time, like, um, and, I have another one on on uh, more specifically. I think uh, Carpenter's politics, but I, I think Carpenter also believes in the American dream in a different way, right? Like he believes the American dream that came before Reaganism. That wasn't just you know um, we're going to profit. And I was thinking about this today, um, rewatching it. But you know when they're like, oh, per capita, everybody that's gotten involved with us, you know, your incomes have all rose by like an average of thirty nine percent. And there's a there's a Thanos meme that I saw, where you know it's after it's after he does the snap and they're like, they're like, you, you killed off half of humanity. And he's like, it was worth it for, and they crossed out and it's like uh 2.3% uh, GDP growth in, in, like, <laughs> per capita. Like <laughs> I saw, I saw that one. It was, that yeah. was solid. Yeah. But like, yeah. it reminds me of that, right? Like, the, like, cause you, you have to think about it in, in terms of, you know, um, what were people making per capita even uh, like, like, if if the if the drifter turns into and I know you wanted to talk about the actor that played the drifter, but like he kind of comes in and he's wearing a suit and it's like, what is thirty nine percent you know GD like thirty nine percent income growth, uh really for that guy? Like it's probably not that much money. He's probably sold out his entire you know his entire species for you know barely anything, and the profits oh, are yeah, like that upward mobility, but like. The, the thing is that, you know, the Reagan era kind of killed off or was the death of kind of that that sense of upward mobility, like the sense that, you know, um, like the, the amount of people that were going to just have it better than, the, you know, than their parents or the amount of people that were just going to have it better than the generation before them uh, just gets cut. And it leads to people being cutthroat, thinking about themselves, this sense of individualism as like the government has failed us. Everything has failed us. The only thing that you can really do is try to profit as much as possible. Um, so Found I, this I, while we were talking, by the way. <laughs> well, I'm, 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 you know, I'm happy. He he kills it on Twitter. He's his Twitter's really good. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but you uh, know, uh, real quick, if I could, what what struck me um, was the uh, the sort of I call it the police state scene. I, I saw that on the big screen, 
when uh they they reshowed it uh one of the theaters around here when i was in my teens and there, there's the scene where the police just come in and wreck the whole little shanty town um and and the church uh where the resistance group is, is, is it, it's uh, it's it's rough that's a like it's, that's a scene that like like when i watched it like like last night i, I was like like wow this is like way more like brutal than i remember like it's well, harsh it's, it, it's rough, and not only that, but it's still relevant because you know I, I was just talking. I was talking. I was talking to some friends in San Francisco about. Uh, they just passed on Christmas Eve. They passed um, an emergency uh, police swarm bill, which is not going to benefit the, the homeless and the poor in in San, in San Francisco. Francisco. So we yeah. still yeah, yeah. see a lot of this stuff over and over again. The stuff that he's talking about in this movie. Well, when well you I about... mean, like, I'm from Oakland. Like, Lib Libby Schaff has been, there's been no greater friend to development than Libby Schaff, you know? Mm -hmm. And Gene Kwan was a hapless fucking fool who bungled everything. But, like, look at the response to Occupy, you know? Like, it was sort of, like, everything about it is is just perfectly indicative of the last 20 years of, of that. Just like, hey, we don't want these people stirring up trouble, so raise it. Like, raise the Shire, right? And, and like, I think that that's a... I don't know that that's I mean it's pressy in in a similar way that you know um it hits differently now but it was like it's it was brutal then but it's even more like yeah this is basically what just what they're gonna do okay no but this is it's pressy in the same way that uh Robocop is too um like you know the idea that like all of these systems are gonna be privatized in this sense um I think John Carpenter has an incredibly attuned I mean I assumably he kind of probably read a lot of new left stuff and and about you know like the relationship between labor and capital but when when it comes to law enforcement like the skeleton function of law enforcement is to protect capital and in this movie the function of law enforcement is literally to protect capital like they only show up in order to protect this alien race and a lot of them either have been bought off or they are of this alien race where they're willing to kind of just swarm in and destroy any kind of resistance to their to their movement um so it, it's it's interesting and it's really fascinating to hear um john carpenter as like one of the first mainstream directors i've ever heard uh talk about reagan's um reagan's entry into the system as a conservative revolution like it doesn't get talked about enough and i think that i mean i i almost felt like he was uh embodying the spirit of um pascal when he, when he was doing that but like the the 50 year because because it's it's the, the thing about the thing that's so insidious, I think, about uh, the Reagan turn, like the neoliberal turn that, that not enough people comment on is the fact that the 60s, you know, revolutionary spirit, I think, was in the air. People are like, oh, the revolution is coming. The revolution did come. It just wasn't the form of a neoliberal turn. Well, you know what I mean? Like it, it was it was a it was a top down fuck over the working class, fuck over the poor revolution. But the there other was a revolution. <laughs> the other thing that's important about that is I don't think people realize that it, you know, there's a really good Showtime series that Matt Turnauer, um, who's the uh, executor of the estate of um, Gore Vidal, um, mm. but he just did a movie, uh, a series on uh, Showtime called The Reagans. And, you know, I've interviewed him and that series is really good because yeah, that series I think is people, really good. people think that Reagan just came in. In the 80s. No, this was part no. of a long term yeah. sort of uh, 
the, the conservatives in America were playing the long game. No, nobody in California thinks that, by the way. I was way too young and or not born yet, but like Reagan was a well-known commodity well, Reagan and a known was... conservative inheritor of the Barry Goldwater. Yeah, I mean, he was that, even closing up to the John Birchers at one point yeah. Uh, yeah. in his early political career. Yeah. Have you guys read uh have you guys read the books by uh Rick Perlstein? Like, you know, Nixon Land, Reagan Land, um he, you know, no he had, land. He has, no man. <laughs> no, Rick Perlstein has written these these four books that in, that yeah, I enjoyed a lot, but they just track um from kind of this this Taft this Taft and I've asked him about it before on Twitter and he's answered, but there's like kind of a Robert Taft was kind of the the conservative um you know, the the conservative I guess uh face of things and it was kind of a weak group within the republican party which at the time you know most of the republicans or a lot of the republicans were kind of liberal republicans um and you know robert taft was leading kind of this conservative movement that didn't go anywhere and then of course it did with uh barry goldwater and well, then you know yeah I, well i was just so, so rick perlstein rick perlstein uh has these four books they're huge books but they they trace the same people that had you know built up Barry Goldwater, who had built up uh, Nixon in, in some ways. You know, understanding that Nixon kind of was willing to um, dip his full uh, dirty ass foot into the you know into the waters of this conservative movement, and then kind of trailing it through um, the Ford Reagan uh, race in 1976, which is you know a book called the Invis the Invisible Bridge kind of tracks that, and then Reaganland, his last book, um, you know Reagan's rise to like. Reagan's rise to full power as president. You know what I mean? Like that book tracks that and it ends with Reagan winning. But, you know, those are really good books if you haven't read them. I, I was going to say, I mean, the other interesting thing about it is uh, a, a lot of the the leaders of that conservative movement that brought us Reagan, they'll openly tell you that this was a long-term plan that they had built uh, even yeah, going back to the was. 50s. You know, Richard, yeah. Richard Vigory is the one I like to mention. He has a book called uh takeover the 100 year war for the soul of the gop and how yeah, conservatives can win he it still he still does he talks to yep. like business groups and he yep. does these um he, he does these like uh like these motivational talks where he's like listen this is how you can use that the uh the mail system that we created for um for gold like like first Goldwater, then nixon and yep. then reagan kind of throughout that whole process he's like you can use this uh this this mail-in service as because the, the thing about Richard Vigory is he was sitting actually in like a um he, he went into the Republican headquarters and was just copying down names of people so that he could do the, his uh his his mailers, you know what I mean? Like and he ended up copying down like 500 names before they kicked him out and realized like oh shit, this guy is just literally like copying down our, our mailing list. So he actually gives like these because he's still alive and he gives these talks to uh to you know, all of these, all these business groups where he's like, this is how you can use my system that I've created. Um, probably gets paid a shitload of money for it too, uh, for your business. <laughs> well, yeah, he's open about it and he's proud of it. And there, there's other figures too, like Paul Weirich and others who they, they openly say this, it's not a secret, you know? Yeah. Um, I mean, starting out with kind of the, the McCarthyite part of it too, and some of the same figures that uh, were kind of speech writing for McCarthy end up um being the people that were you know fully in charge of reagan's campaign which is you know insane and also uh you know the the young conservatives who kind of um sparred with the new left throughout the entire 60s and 70s as like 
the the youth the youth because you have to have a youth movement right like you have to have some kind of youth force behind you which it's funny that really the conservatives don't seem to now it seems like turning point usa which generates some of the the funniest you know memes making fun of their memes but like it seems like that's the closest thing they really have now and i don't know it just seems like both. yeah okay but and this i i'm, I'm finding this subject is kind of be feel like the air is being let out of the tires of the discussion, frankly, personally. But like, I think it's important to remember that going back to the idea of the Reagan re revolution and everything and the which has never ended, frankly, being like a multi-decade project. That's what I get so frustrated with people that, you know, oh, we, we didn't win. So, OK, electoralism is is bad and we shouldn't do that anymore. That's fucking absurd. That's a Dutch a child's understanding of things. And all it takes is 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 looking at things from a historical perspective rather than an ideological one. Uh, to learn from what's come before that like, like, look, if, if the point is you're meant to feel frustrated, the point is you're meant to feel like that thing is happening. That's the point, because if you dissuade people long enough, then they'll concern themselves with other things and they'll uh, stop getting involved in. But if it's something you actually believe in, if it's something that you actually want to see change in, then you have to stay with it and you have to stay with it in a way that works. And I'm not saying electoralism is the answer for everything. Don't get it twisted. But like I got, you know, I, I actually probably have a laundry list of problems that's more pointed to the American left than I do for like any other. Oh no, uh, we're watching group. Conan get blackpilled live on. <laughs> 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 but but that's just because it's like it's you know it's it's like you're so close to getting it right, but it but it's like you're falling for all of the, the nonsense that you shouldn't be falling for. I mean, honestly, it's probably like you know your your mod libs, uh, beltway brain people that I have like the most vehement. Uh, detesting of everything that they stand for but like it's it's look man it's a marathon not a sprint like well, that that's what it comes I, I down to and and the people that ran the the were took part of the uh you know whether the christian conservative folks they the reagan revolution people they realized that all the goldwater people yeah goldwater lost right goldwater got got hammered and eventually even like recanted some of, of the uh more uh, gross parts of the orthodoxy, but ultimately gold. He also, he also fully, uh, he also fully leaned into the segregationist part, which I think, oh, well, of um, course, he did. That's yeah. that's an important part of being, like that coalition, uh, being, right? Being good old Bill Buckley, uh, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The lionized Bill Buckley, aka the uh, you know, what did he say to Gore Vidal? Like, you know, with, with the many times he physically threatened him, but anyway, point of fact is that like it's you got to be patient for that kind of thing. And Carpenter's right in many interviews with this movie, he talks about how like hey, Reagan, Reagan Revolution never stopped, like it's still going on. Like, the, there's like been different people that have been at you know. Uh, benefiting from it or like you know nicer people administrating it but it really never changed and he's totally right about that and he is which is weird because again it, it requires that you have a nuanced view of politics that, yeah he is basically like a regulatory capitalist but he has progressive ideology and that is possible and the problem i have with so much of the, of the modern left is that no one's willing to make coalitions it's like you either correct or incorrect I'm like well you can be correct all you want but you can't raise an army on who was correct. And like, that's what you need to do to be able to like change hearts and minds and ultimately to bring equality and advance power. And I mean, I think that the Rick Perlstein books that I was talking about, um, the reason that he has tracked this so much is kind of to make kind of a, and he, he was a Warren guy. He wasn't like a Bernie guy, but um, Rick Perlstein, I mean, specifically, but like, yeah. um, you know, he wanted to, he wants to empower liberals, progressives, you know, like 
to make them understand that this is a long-term project and to make them understand that conservatism has been a long-term project and that, you know, not that you can copy anything that like Richard Vigory did, which, you know, the, the direct mailers, um, because obviously that kind of thing doesn't work now, but the understanding that like this apparatus gets built from the bottom, right? Like this apparatus kind of in like, um, in, in, enrages and fuels a grassroots movement. And we kind of think about grassroots because we've kind of been, um, you know, we've been kind of disempowered by like the Obama administration and stuff like that, where it's like, oh, well, these things kind of get captured by someone like Obama, where they have, you know, insane amount of grassroots support. And then all of a sudden they get elected and just like, don't care about their grassroots movement anymore. But that's not the way that things should work. And it's not the way that things could work. If, if you really, if you had someone like Bernie that like really understood the power of um, like an organized grassroots force of people that were, um, you know, paying a small amount of money and actually felt invested within the campaign itself, like whether or not that ends up being um, like the, the seed that, you know, creates like a, a whole bunch of different flowers, like it should be. And we should understand that these things are not, um, they don't happen overnight. And I think that honestly, I mean, there's a part of me that probably would get absolutely destroyed by people on Twitter for thinking this, but like when I see what the lack of everything that Biden's done during coronavirus, I have to wonder a little bit like electing Bernie during coronavirus itself as, as a uh, nonstop parade, I think of, of temporary victories and defeats because like every time we kind of get money towards something, like we get a bunch of money towards something and then it's like, oh, well, it's going to expire in six months. Like, it's hard to imagine that. Yeah. And it's heavily means tested like, to, you know, yeah. all kinds of copy. Oh, well, it always, it always, it always is with the Democratic Party. But like, it's, you know, it's, it's. Yeah, Republicans don't care. By the way, Democrats started that off as a way to impress Republicans and Republicans do not care at all. Yeah. Don't care. Like. Like, do not care even a little bit. And we'll go to the point of saying, I think that means testing is not important. And then Democrats, yeah, but we're going to do it. We're going to do more of it. Yeah, they're because like, we well, think it makes well, us look cool. You want Nobody thinks you look cool. They're like, well, would you want rich people to benefit from this program? And it's yeah. like, I listen. And that's a tiresome program. argument. I don't want to yeah. hijack with yeah. that. But yeah. <laughs> but uh, this, this is the second. I wanted to play the second. Um, but the, the last thing I want to say on yeah. that point is that I think what people have failed to understand is that impatience is in of itself a pacification mechanism. At the same time, I mean, I, I think it's hard. No, no, time. no. But but I, I need to, I need to be explicitly clear about this. I know our I, entire I, our I entire culture. I I yeah. agree with you on that point. I'm not I, I'm not disagreeing. I'm just saying like with with. But we're being trained to be impatient. These, these, all these, these things that we are, are that we're dealing with, not like this specifically, but all the social media apparatus, it's training yeah. us to be impatient. It's training us to reward immediate gratification because that's what helps in a consumer society. So if you realize that you can engage with it honestly, then you can have more of a Zen like perspective and kind of like pull back and like see it for what it is. Well, but, then, to be, to be point, fair, I mean, it's hard to have that during climate change. You know what I mean? Like that's a specific issue where it's hard to be. Yeah. Well, I, I, I was just going to say, and I'm not entirely disagreeing, but I mean, I, I think it depends on. It's okay to disagree. Uh, I do it all the time. That in society. And for, for some people, this is like the, some of the problems we face are much more urgent and directly felt. by. Well, some of course they are. But, but, but no, I, I think you, that's, you, yeah, but I'm not just, I'm, but, but here's the thing. You can hold two ideas in your head, right? Yes. The we, dialectic, we folks, that is called the dialectic. Climate change is like... If you learn nothing else from this podcast. <laughs> conservation, the time for conservation was 
30 years ago. We have to worry about terraforming this planet now, and that's how it should be coached. The language needs to be reframed to terraform not Mars, not the moon, but this planet. That is literally the only thing that will save this entire uh, race of people and like all of humanity is, is to be able to do that. But that's not what we're talking. We're talking about like, you know, Oh, carbon taxes and this and that. I'm like, th that is so in the rear view. That's like two cities ago, like in, you know, in the rear view. I, I, I'll let you play your clip um, for us. I'm, I'm sorry. I just wanted to add that. The, <laughs> no, I'm, uh, no, I'm fine with this. This is the type of I mean, conversation that I'm used to have. <laughs> well, for, for yeah. Me, yeah. It's the, fine. <laughs> the thing that I liked um, about that clip with uh, Carpenter talking about Reagan I think he's right that that line he had about, um, you know, I think it's gone even farther than yeah. Reagan. It's, it, I mean, the Reagan revolution never left, but now these forces are even farther to the right than Reagan. And uh, I, I think he has a point because I always tell people, I mean, what, what do conservatives really want to conserve anymore? Um, it seems like they just sort of want to wreck everything. No, it should be, uh, it should be the money level. and it's, power. Yeah. It should yeah. be the consumer. It's just a reactionary movement. Yeah. It should be the consumerative party, like, you know, or the, you know, conservative, like, but the, the thing about it going farther is that, you know, after Reagan, I mean, it's the same thing with Thatcher, like after Reagan, the neoliberal turn hit the Democrats harder than, you know, like the reason HW lost, um, uh, like, you know, his, his race and, um, is, is that, uh, well, his second race, not his 1988 race, but the race, the reason that HW lost a second term is because Bill Clinton took the neoliberal turn and did it better than he could. You know what I mean? Like it's so when people are talking about, well, they, yeah, that's, that's the whole third way motif, right? Yeah. Like, that's how we led to the corporate Dems that we have to, of today. Like it became like, Hey, why don't we just like basically throw a middle finger to organize labor and abandon them completely and like make it so that they don't have a ground, any ground to stand on for all the areas they're strong in. And to be fair, it worked as a short term goal. The problem is it advanced bad policy and it moved the entire origin window of American politics, like two to three clicks over to the right, where it basically is, has stayed. For the most part, and, and that's I think when when someone like John Carpenter understands that I mean, which it's kind of refreshing to hear somebody in like a, a establishment, I guess position like he like it's not established, but like you know someone who created like Halloween. It's it's kind of uh, feels reaffir like reaffirming, I guess, to, to have him understand that it was a um, conservative revolution, and it wasn't just like you know uh, you know Reagan was bad and whatever happened from there happened from there it, it it feels good to me at least to understand that like he understands at least the part about the revolutionary aspect of it because it is it was a rev like the both parties turned to that as soon as um as soon as they could but this is uh so this is his other clip that i found um during a different interview talking about uh more specifically about you know the politics of it out of the 60s i grew up uh in a countercultural movement uh, rock and roll drugs sex it was a different time and there's a lot of rebellion going on well what i didn't know was that there was a giant backlash waiting to happen out there in in, in america and i was unaware of this living in my own world until jimmy carter kind of came along with these great intentions and was maligned and and hated because he dared speak the truth to us, which is we're using too much energy. We worship consumerism, all these things, the Malay's speech. So 
Ronald Reagan came along and Reagan was a, we had him as governor of California before the country had him. He was this kind of amiable actor, politician who uh, just had the, the dumbest ideas. And so Reagan got in, was elected because of this backlash I'm talking about. And his policies, um, poverty went up, homelessness went up. He destroyed the unions. He began to attack liberalism. He began to attack Roosevelt liberalism. Whether to tell this from the story of the middle class or the working class. I could have told it uh, from the middle class point of view of somebody who works at a TV station, for instance, and something strange is going on and they discover the truth. It's happening through that TV station. Or I could tell the story through the working poor. Somebody who's uh, trying to make a living, trying to support his family, but uh, is out of luck. So I went that direction because I hadn't seen a movie like that. I hadn't seen a movie about the poor. Look! Look at them! They're everywhere! Maybe they can see. Nobody had done anything like this back then. I was involved with a comedy for a while earlier in the 80s. Men didn't get married for a variety of reasons. And in that movie, I wanted to critique the 80s and the same sort of thing, but the producers weren't having it. They just didn't see that, not in this film. Well, that, that, let's go back to Parasite. How did Parasite oh, win Best Picture? It managed I thought you were going to do a Reagan... I thought you were going to do a Reagan impression going, well. Well. <laughs> um, I, it's too much Reagan that, talk in this show already, frankly. This, uh, <laughs> that's, that's the name of this podcast. Too much Reagan, too much Reagan talk extravagant. With, with the number two, too much. But um, I, the last part, I thought Andy was going to be on, and we kind of had, had this uh, long conversation when I was on Bad Takes last time um, about the 80s and how kind of you couldn't critique this idea of Reaganism because it seemed like it was so pronounced. It seemed like it was so all-encompassing. Um, you know, this, this greed, this idea that, you know, like the government isn't going to save you. The government needs to get reduced. The government is the problem. Like all of these ideas were so um, overly like Audrey just got in with the door again. Jesus Christ. I feel like I'm in Jurassic park with the fucking velociraptors, but um, uh, you know, so those, those ideas had, had been so all encompassing that you couldn't uh, suddenly have a standard movie critiquing those ideas because all of a sudden, you know, it was morning in America. You know what I mean? Like, Oh, like audiences don't want to hear you critique the Reagan administration. Audiences don't want to hear you critique capitalism. They want to hear you, um, you know, the only way you can really do it is to either have uh, such an absurdist comedy like tape heads or something or, or, you know, or like, I mean, there's a lot of, there's a lot of these, um, uh, <laughs> anyway, no. So it's like, hold on. You, you, uh, you guys go. I'll finish the. Yeah, no, I, I, I think you're on. I think you're on to something with that, right? I mean, JG, what do you think? What do you think about all that? Yeah, well, I was talking to Forrest about that earlier because, in some ways, I think a, lo a lot of people that love horror movies will say uh, horror movie. You know, the '80s were a bad time for horror movies. It's when we got the the, the endless Jason sequels, and the endless Halloweens, and Freddies. Yeah, but it, I mean, it was also the time where you could get films like They Live like the people under the yeah. stairs, like Toby Hooper's Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2, a.k.a. the only film I know of that basically um, 
takes the metaphor of, uh, well, it says that capitalism's logical conclusion is, is cannibalism. That's the punchline of the film. I, I think you could make those films in the 80s and those films did get made, but it was done as sort of satire of yuppiedom. Um, and, and you really see that in They Live and the aforementioned uh, Toby Hooper movie, the, the Texas Chainsaw sequel. So, but I think it all had to be done with like a very sort of absurdist lens, right? Yeah, no, a hundred. That, that's the point that I was trying yeah. to like. That, it's that, it's that, like that, a, another movie like that that I think way too many young men misinterpret the film is uh like Scarface because when I watch Scarface, <laughs> I'm like this yes. is a black comedy about like what happens when you're a crazy, yeah. greasy, greedy capitalist that wants to have sex with your sister for some weird reason. Um, and and all it's not a movie. He's not an aspirational role model, as we were discussing earlier. Yeah, yeah. No, you really, you really missed the point on this. This is not this that is not movie. Out of I, I th it's weird because I know I've known people that are like, uh, they're like, well, why can't I have the uh, hot tub like Tony Montana does? I'm, I'm just like, well, Tony rappers, rappers a person. do it. Rappers do it all the time, right? Like they say yeah. an aspirational line. They're like Tony Montana, and you're like. No, it's not. Also, it's nothing it, to aspire to. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I can understand wanting to live vicariously in the sense of like, you know, you don't have this or that, but it's it's interesting because that movie is so excessive that you think people would look at it as sort of an absurd black comedy, but a lot of people no. don't. It's, it's very don't, don't 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 give people too many too much credit. That's <laughs> another problem with the left is we give people way too much credit. People are vacuous, not very intellectually curious. And honestly, I hate to say it, kind of dumb. And it doesn't mean they have to stay that way for forever. And it doesn't mean everyone should be treated like idiots either. But, like, why would you give unearned credit for people for, like, believing things that you think are obvious when you've thought about them? Still, you know I think, we shouldn't man, do that. You know what I think? People got to put on the glasses. <laughs> exactly. I mean, look at like the only hot temper I can think of doing this kind of thing is Hassan, Hassan Piker, right? You know, like I mean, like that's the only person I can think of. And even then, he's at the at the behest of the of the corporate gods, you know, whose uh, whims will will change, like who they're going to slap down, like a like a Greek god of uh, of legend with a lightning bolt, right? I mean, there's words it's, there's words you can't say on this on the show. You now. Can't say them. People want to say them. You can't say them. It's canceled. Want to talk about Rit? You want to talk about uh, Cheez-Its? Can't talk about those things anymore. <laughs> but I, but I, but I think it's I think it's all valid. I think it's all incredibly valid points. I mean, like, yeah, like you know, Scarface is a perfect example of of like, look, that's not like you don't want to be like that guy. That guy's profiting off of like human misery, like quintessentially. Like, there's no ambiguity there whatsoever. At least with Breaking Bad, you had to like, hey, if this was like single payer healthcare, this would be like a twenty minute show. Yeah, like, I, I always make that point. Breaking Bad. Every time I rewatch it, I'm like, holy shit! None of this would have would have would have happened if it wasn't for, <laughs> yeah. like, if we had single payer healthcare. Um, yeah, I, and that's I and that, also let's let's also bring up just since ostensibly this is a movie show, Scarface is a remake, and the and yeah. the the immigrant part of the rags to riches story is, is kind of like what they leaned into with it, and that's what yes. people do focus. On. I think it's important. Uh, well, from the but comments. it's Oliver Stone very specifically. I mean, you know, as the writer of it, very specifically leaning into the Cuban, uh, the Cuban part. exactly. Yeah, no, Wait, which Cuban, that's like, a whole. Yeah, yeah. but um, that's but, a whole thing. But the other thing <laughs> is that Oliver Stone, after researching this, um had a coke problem to the point where they needed to you know uh helicopter him over to uh over to paris to fucking detox him and his like wife at the time 
um, in order to write the script because his uh, research had taken quite a few turns that were bad enough that he needed to detox after the fact. He also almost died twice while right while researching it, but uh, because he was hanging out with with uh, he was researching so hard last night. <laughs> man, I was researching so fucking hard last night. I don't know. I'm not, I don't think I'm going to be researching for a little bit. <laughs> but anyway, I, but I love I love. He also angry, claims man. that now he can do a little coke at a party and he's fine. And he's like, listen, I, I don't do it like I used to. And it's like, mm-hmm. Oliver Stone, just be careful, bro. Because I, I, I love Oliver Stone. I think Oliver Stone's like one of the most important uh, directors and writers that we have right now. And, you know, talking to Dim, uh, talking to talking to Jim D, 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 was, I think was a really great moment for the show. I like, you know, like that conversation was, was amazing. So like, um, I, like, I, you know, I hope, I hope he's good and he takes care of himself. Well, but <laughs> so having something to do with that is, is like, think about the fact that when they live came out, what movie came out the year before wall street, Michael Douglas Reed is good, right? Like that you have a, a young Charlie Sheen. People forget this plot all the time. And I mentioned it on one of the other episodes. I can't remember, but Bilking his dad, Martin Sheen, who's like an old school like union guy, basically fucking over his union for to get ahead in the company, right? So that's where the zeitgeist was around this, which is the fact that there was no alternate history of like, hey, maybe don't do this. You literally had one of the biggest movie stars of the day saying, greed is good. That's where this was. So the fact that like they live... You know, if we think of like, you know, some people thought it was heavy handed at the time. It was like heavy handed. Have you seen what else is happening around here? Like, mm-hmm. I mean, the, the whole yuppie personification thing. I barely understood. I was a child at the time. But even then, like I get to hear from my dad is, a, you know, very much a working class dude of, uh, you know, how full of crap he thought all of this stuff was. And to see it actually depicted on film in the same way that we think of like a movie like RoboCop as like an incredible, like, you know, uh, character study and, you know, p- potential cautionary tale of privatization and things along those lines. It's all right here. And again, I used you're talking to someone that when I used to watch this movie, I would get so impatient about the first half hour. I'm like, Oh, come on. Can we just get to the good stuff? But like now, honestly, like, on this most recent rewatch was maybe my favorite part. I'm like, God damn. Like, it's crazy. Cause you see this little thing of like, you see them like, Oh, they're, they're, they're interrupting the broadcast. Cause remember, let's remember the power of broadcast television at this point. This is before cable as we know it, let alone, you know, everyone's private YouTube channel. You could not get a message out. So they're interrupting the broadcast. Then you have this kind of slow unraveling of like, well, who's doing it? Oh, well, something's going on in that church. That's interesting. Okay. There's this cat who's like, you know, kind of organizing all the unhoused people and like he's maybe involved in some way, this and that, et cetera, et cetera. But it's such a slow unraveling. And Carpenter is just like, I'm not going to rush any part of this. Like, this is all important because then when you have like you know, the raising of the Shire, where they basically come, the cops come in and just, you know, annihilate the entire like encampment. Like it hits like super hard to the point that you almost forget you're watching a science fiction movie. You're like, oh, yeah, this is ostensibly about aliens. <laughs> but it's really about all of those things because the idea is, you know, the alien concept of, you know, like humanity being uh, forced, not forced to cajoled into in imbibing in its own worst impulses, which is why I, the human collaborator part of it. So fast. Yeah. And, and, and really, I mean, really, it is this this idea that, you know, you can kind of fuck everybody else over 
because your own lot in society has been so bad as someone who's working class or as someone who's like living in poverty that, you know, it's yeah. like the drift, like there's that moment where the, the, the fuck you got yeah. mine. Uh, um, what's the, what's the actor's name? JG. Uh, oh, George uh, Buck flower is the, uh, yeah. the bum that turns into the suit. Yeah. That, that turn. And that's such a, like, I was like, Oh my God, that's that, that bum guy. And like, he, he sold out. I didn't sell out. I bought in, you know, whatever the, right. the, the, the well, no, but he says like people sell out every day, which like, yeah, that's, to that's be fair. Like, like to be fair. I mean, is, is a true point in the sense of like, yeah, like you go to work, like it's this kind of like disempowering kind of almost uh, like it's the yuppie phrase, right? Like, yeah. well, well, listen, you- like it doesn't really matter that I've sold out because listen, we all sell it every day, man. Like we go to work, we kind of sell out. We, we have corporate bosses and it's like, don't, don't I deserve mine? And it's like, but like that's with like, that comes at the price of, uh, ending class solidarity it comes well, at the not, not of- only not only that but th- that character i find it interesting he's like well you know i got my suit now and i i'm, I'm living large and all that That's probably all I'm he has myself, it eventually like they're gonna drain the planet dry and then they're gonna th- throw you to the curb too like, but, but like but the, the thought i guess is somebody living in that amount of po- like poverty and squalor yeah. is like i was already thrown to the curb uh yeah. why not why not try to get a little bit of the good yeah. life like he, he says it in the same way that um that, that fucking Danny DeVito says it, and it's always sunny where he throws the fucking balloon, and he's like, yeah. here's a taste of the good life, you fucking shit. Like, you know what I mean? Like, it's in the same, that same, uh, like, so do you want a little taste of the good life? Everybody does. And he says it in such, like, a submissive and almost, like, uh, you know, like, almost like a, a sexual way. Like, he's, he's ba- like, you know what I mean? Like, he's like, he's like, oh, everyone wants a little, don't, don't kill me. Everyone wants a little, don't you want a little taste of the good life? And it's like, Jesus Christ. But I wanted to, I wanted to throw to this because, um this is this is the first time i had i so i was sitting in a college class a media class um and i had this professor named uh howie good and i still facebook friends with him he was he was awesome but he was like one of those like like new left kind of crank dudes that you know that like i really i love those kinds of guys but like the whole class was based on um like like understanding media and the first time i ever heard of Zizek was uh he played um the pervert's guide to ideology um in a <laughs> in a lecture that he gave so i i grabbed the 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 scene from um this is the first scene i ever remember uh hearing Zizek talking about where he's like the trash can of ideology and <laughs> so good so i wanted i wanted to play that by the way i think we're gonna do the pervert's guide to um sometime this winter i think we're gonna do the pervert's guide to cinema with uh with russell and Russell Zabriglia, Zabriglia, wow. And uh, I think we're going to do that as, a, as an episode of this because I think that it would be an awesome fucking episode. But um, here we go. I'm giving you a choice. Either put on these glasses or start eating that trash can. I already am eating from the trash can all the time. The name of this trash can is Ideology. The material force of ideology makes me not see what I'm effectively eating. It's not only our reality which enslaves us. The tragedy of our predicament when we are within ideology is that when we think that we escape it into our dreams, at that point, we are within ideology. They live from 19, 
88 is definitely one of the forgotten masterpieces of the Hollywood left. It tells the story of John Nada. Nada, of course, in Spanish means nothing, a pure subject deprived of all substantial content, a homeless worker in L.A. who, drifting around, one day enters into an abandoned church and finds there a strange box full of sunglasses. And when he put one of them on, walking along the L.A. streets, he discovers something weird. The these glasses function like critique of ideology glasses. They allow you to see the real message beneath all the propaganda, publicity, glitz, posters, and so on. You see a large publicity board telling you, have your holiday of a lifetime. And when you put the glasses on, you see just on the white background a gray inscription. We live, so we are told, in a post-ideological society. We are interpolated, that is to say, addressed by social authority, not as subjects who should do their duty, sacrifice themselves, but subjects of pleasures. Realize your true potential, be yourself, lead a satisfying life. When you put the glasses on, you see dictatorship in democracy. It's the invisible order which sustains your apparent freedom. The explanation for the existence of this strange ideology glasses is the standard story of the invasion of the body snatchers. Humanity is already under the control of aliens. Hey, buddy. You gonna pay for that or what? Look, buddy, I don't want no house today. Either pay for it or put it back. According to our common sense, we think that ideology is something blurring, confusing our straight view Ideology should be glasses which distort our view. And the critique of ideology should be the opposite, like you take off the glasses so that you can finally see the way things really are. Preach, testify. So that you can see how things really are. I know I can. <laughs> Not the screen, but I can see everything else. <laughs> I, you know, I, I have to admit, I, I love... Zizek uh, <laughs> is like the best. I Just real quick Zizek story. I've talked to him once, and he was supposed to talk to me for 20 minutes. Went 50, and then I had another interview to do, and he couldn't stop talking. He was like, what is Pittsburgh like? I remember the time I went to see a play 
of uh, Sodom's Last Dance. I wanted to see mm-hmm. the pretty ladies, but I fell asleep from the jet lag. And and it, he is just the funniest, most affable person I have talked to. And then, I, uh, uh, so I, on the so, show. So he yes. so he came. Well, we'll, we'll so, get Frank Grillo and Zizak at the same time. <laughs> <laughs> So I um, I would be hundred percent for that. By the way, so he so he came on TMBS um a few months before Michael passed away. That was like one of Michael's like I I need to like you know what I mean like his his dream interviews. There was like four of them. It was like Cornell West, who came on Zizak. Um, he did his interview with Lula and uh, Noam Chomsky, which amazing. He did all four of his like you know before he passed away, but um. Zizek came on the first time and was talking to Michael and I was talking to him about this and he was talking about how next time he was in the city, they were going to get like, you know, cat's deli. Like they were going to go get bagel. Like it was just the funniest interview I've ever fucking seen in my life. And then Michael passed and I, I rode a uh, kind of shotgun on this um, Cornell West Zizek conversation that Leisha, like Michael's sister um, did after the fact. And it was just, Cornell West and Zizek going back and forth for an hour and a half. And I was on the Zoom call for that. And it was the most amazing thing I've ever seen in my fucking life. And then, you know, I, I ended up uh, actually talking to him and, and like going back, like for, back and forth and like having a good conversation when he came on, give them an argument with Russell. And, uh, you know, that was a really fun conversation. He like roasted my, the setup because I had this mural, um, Oh, Audrey's back and <laughs> opened the door again. Um, he had this mural behind him that, or I had my, I had this mural behind me that I always had, where it had a picture of a mountain. And he's like, "Is this really the mountain behind you?" And I was like, "Cause I was, I was telling him that you know, New Paltz has the Schwangong Mountain or whatever that's like right behind, you know, right out the window that I could see from my apartment." And I was like, "No, it's not that mountain." He's like, "The greatest Liconian paradox. You sweep away the mural." And then all of a sudden, you can see the mountain behind you, and this is <laughs> so he like That's he awesome. kind of roasted my and then and then he went off on a whole thing. He was supposed to get off the 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 call because he had other things to do. Like it, it was the same thing that you're talking about, where it's like you know it goes from like a 20 minute to 50 yeah, minutes. It sounds like we just book him for 15 minutes and he's good. Like we'll have him for the whole show, right? <laughs> but he well, he, uh, he was he on actually a bunch of different... said to me, I said I have to get going, Slavoy, and he says. Oh, you just just tell me to shut up. I keep going on too much. <laughs> yeah, like, I think he said he said the same thing to Ben actually when we had him <laughs> give him an argument. My, we, listen, we my dream was to talk to Shishak and be able to ask him what he thinks of the band Libok, and I that <laughs> dream was fulfilled. And then he went on and talked about Rammstein for another twenty minutes. So uh, even more fulfilled after that one. Yeah, Shishak's but, um, great. But, but yeah, so I so I remember you know having the chance to talk to him kind of twice. Um, I just think back to that class that I was in, where the first thing I've never, I'd never heard of Zizek at the point at the at the time. I'd only heard of liberal thinkers, <laughs> and uh, no, the first thing that I um, like the first time I ever experienced him was the the pervert's guide to ideology in this college class, and like I think back on it now, like you know, being like, oh shit, like I like I've I've talked to that dude, and like, but that I I was I needed to play that. For the reason, you know, that that was the first, the first. Well, uh, I, I, but I, so I, I, I love his identification of, of they live as sort of like a classic example of 
you know, what it, I, I remember how exactly I described it, but basically like, you know, agitprop uh, American critical thinking, like, you know, liberalist theory. I think that that's, again, consider the year. You know, I was real busy being like nine or 10, depending on when you watched it. But like, I oh, mean, yeah? did that take up your whole schedule? It, it was real busy. I was real busy with my Transformers. So sorry. <laughs> it gets me too eloquently for it. I, I was going to say his commentary on They Live. I mean, I, I know Shishak, some people have issues with his like uh, opinions on a lot of things. But I, I think when it comes to his that clip that he does in, in, in the uh, Pervert's Guide to Ideology, um, I, I think it's one of the most spot on things he has said with regards to his film criticism. Yeah. No, it definitely. Well, because 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 the thing is, this is an important this is an important movie because it's an important sci fi film, but it's also an important movie because, like, frankly, we're still living in this, right? Like, and, it's, and it's, it, it's the embodiment of what he's talking about yeah. in the Pervert's Guide to Ideology. It's a movie about ideology, you know. And, and it's it's amazing to me that, like, I was talking to someone. Actually, I was talking to someone that was stoked about us doing this. And had just like watched They Live for the first time and basically expressed. And I was like, yeah, it's kind of frightening how poignant and accurate this still is. And she was like, yeah, that is kind of a good that's a good point. And, and because it really like like Carpenter says, not like not that much has changed right now. Of course, like, you know, they're not actual like the whole thing. The, the David Icke's theory, like the the lizard people, and like you know the the anti Jewish sentiment, this and that, that's all nonsense. But like, well, it's, it's interesting is... because the lizard people thing. I mean, I get it as a metaphor, but when you literalize sure. it, it's like David Icke is being well, literal. <laughs> what he says, it no, makes I sense literally... as a metaphor for like power elites. But know? but I like how he was like, no, I literally think that they're lizard people. Like it was like, right, it was like oh, okay, well tall. that's. Yeah fucking nuts and you're a fucking crazy person but yeah again like i'm gonna throw it up on the screen i didn't read this earlier so this is john carpenter's tweet that says they lives about yeah. yuppies and unrestrained good, good, good to read it because i you know i keep forgetting this is also an audio podcast yeah I, I i usually am better about it but yeah so just john carpenter in 2017 they live is about yuppies and unrestrained capitalism it has nothing to do with jewish control of the world which is a slander and a lie and i think that's important for him to say because like like there's this whole world of this what I, I call them like new metal conspiracy theories where it's just sort of like it used to be fun and now it's like oh this is like just pointless aggression with no output and it's that's what conspiracy theories are now like it's sort of like i we used to love on tour we listen to art bell we listen to art bell we listen to like coast to coast radio like when you're like driving late at night and stuff because it's great it's creepy it sounds like the x files awesome but like now that's just like it's mainstream. Like your grandma believes it, right? Like that's not, it's not fun anymore. If your grandma believes it, where it's like, well, no, that sucks. I, I think, I think, this is, this, um, this is like the stained of like your conspiracy theories or something, you know? Well, I think the drowning I think, pool. I think Nan Nando Vila put it perfectly um, on weekends one time. And I only remember this cause I was, you know, cause I was working editing weekends, which I guess RIP, they're not going to do that show anymore. But, um, uh, we're not saying there's a correlation, but there maybe there's a correlation. Uh, Nando Nando says something amazing, which is that you know the left doesn't really need conspiracy theories because our like our theory of you know uh, like of of capitalism kind of being the thing that's causing a lot of these things has you know encompasses enough things that like it doesn't need a conspiracy theory on top of it to, to yeah. be true it just is you know it just is a critique of the economic system it just is a critique of the political system and the 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 right the right version of that is you know these 
they go all over the place, whether it's, you know, a Jewish control of the media and, 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 and capital and, you know, all of these things, or whether it's, um, you know, like there's a whole bunch of different ones, like, you know, saying just the government it wants doesn't to control matter. you, we, like, the government wants we... to control you for the sake of controlling you. Yeah. No other, no other, you know, well, why do they want to control you? Well, they want to control you. Like, you know what right. I mean? Like these critiques, um, once you add capital to it, it's like, well, no, there's no fucking Jewish conspiracy. Like, obviously, that doesn't exist. And the reason it doesn't exist is because it's a it's a capitalist conspiracy that transcends all other factors. Like, you know what I mean? Like, it transcends religion. Yeah. It transcends race. It transcends all of these things. It's just people with money trying to uh, utilize, oppress, and extract resources and extract labor from people that don't have that power. Because you can, you know, maintain your status, because you can maintain your wealth, because you can maintain your money, because you can maintain your, your capital by oppressing those people. It doesn't need to be deeper than that. But the fact that, you know, right-wing conspiracy theorists don't have that because they fundamentally believe that capitalism is good. They fundamentally believe that it, whether you want to call it capitalism or, as John Carpenter does, unrestrained capitalism is good. Um, it needs to be something else. It needs to be something way crazier because – in their own minds, they can't fundamentally see the hierarchical system at play, uh, you know, being the problem. The, 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 I was just going to say, the issue with, like, this, the issue I have always had with conspiracy theories, and I, I mean, I've talked to people like Jim DiEugenio about this. I think that, I think especially with the right wing, I, I mean, I, I think there are, instances where people conspire to do things you know people go to boardroom meetings and talk about strategizing well it's the it's the oliver you know, that's thing, class right? power like, work what is a right? conspiracy it's two or more people uh yeah well to, people i mean people conspire to do things that's true the thing is the the right-wing conspiracy culture is like uh they have this mentality of like if we just get rid of the bad guy then everything will go uh and, and be meritocratic again and it, I mean, it's kind of like dumb and grand conspiracy narratives like that are driven by this idea of if we can just get rid of the bad people that are in power, then everything will be fixed. Well, and it, that's not because, how it works. I think that's why the have, left is so much better. It's because they can't, by uh, definition, can't have a structural critique, right? Like yeah. a structural critique would involve capitalism. A structural critique would involve the ways that business uh, con like conspires with the government in order to oppress large amounts of people because the government is literally just the, the thing uh, that's mediating these relationships uh, between, you know, labor and capital. Like, that's all it really is. There's no, yeah. you know, like at this point, I mean, not maybe yeah. like maybe not in the past that John Carpenter is talking about where kind of labor seemed to have the upper hand for a quick second during the FDR days, um, you know, or at least they were trying to make some kind of deal in order to uh, placate labor and have people have enough of a relationship to their like you know to capital to um feel like they don't need to do you know they don't need this conflict but like in general if you don't have a critique of capital you have to come up with some kind of other boogeyman and it yeah, comes it comes also, out in the way of immigrants it comes out in the way of the jewish conspiracy it comes out in the way of all of these different ideas well, that would yeah I was just going to say, you also come to this erroneous conclusion. Like, it, it's like when, you know, uh, to me, it's like, okay, uh, you know, some horrible person like uh, a Harvey Weinstein is went to jail or, 
you know, Jeffrey Epstein's dead. But there's as, as long as there's a system that is structurally producing people that are abusive when they have power, you're going to just see people like that. Repro- you're going to have other versions of them. Right. Like if you want a, a better society, you have to look at things structurally. Right. Yeah. And like, what are the structures that produce uh, people that engage in abuse of others? You know, whereas I think a conspiracy theorist is like, no, we just get rid of the, the bad Illuminati people and then everyone will live happily ever after. And it doesn't. And it's the same. Well, it's the same thing that, you know, liberals feel like with. Uh, yes. Uh, with with the police, like, you know what I mean? Or, or with government or like. <laughs> Oh, we get rid of Donald Trump and everything is back to normal and it's fine. We can go back to brunch. That's the guy, Donald Trump. We get rid of George Bush. Everything goes back to normal. That's the guy, George Bush. We get rid of this police, these police officers, you know, the few bad, the few bad eggs or, you know what I mean? The few uh, bad seeds within the, the police, uh, the police apparatus and everything goes back to normal. Normal is fine. Normal is good. Normal, normal, you know, um, my my social instincts are are kind of placated by normal, you know what I mean? Placated by normal, and Sean, you 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 know, <laughs> but you, you you placate these certain elements, and then things are back to you know, you're fine again. You're living your life again. It doesn't really matter. And I think Donald Trump is the ultimate uh, manifestation of that because it, it's somebody that um, you know the, the liberals could fully find as the guy. That's the guy, right? Donald Trump. Well, that's the guy. That's, get rid of him. Life is normal again. T- tying this back into they live. What, what's interesting about they live? If you compare it to Carpenter's other movies, yes, I, I know. Spoilers that uh, Roddy Piper's character doesn't make it through till the end. You know, he sacrifices himself. Uh, but you know, it's he a weird it thing about this movie. Seconds before the end. What's that? They say he makes it through until 30 seconds. Yeah, well, yeah, yeah. But <laughs> what, what, what's weird is like watching it again. It, maybe this is why right wingers like this, because it appeals to that sense of like, oh, well, if we just overthrow the bad people. I mean, it's less downbeat than a lot of his other films. You, you watch Prince of Darkness or In the Mouth of Madness uh, yeah, yeah, or even The Thing. Those are like just apocalyptically dreary in their endings. Whereas They Live is actually pretty funny mm-hmm. with the you know she slaps the alien in the face or whatever uh tucker carlson yeah. trying to drink at a bar and yeah 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 well it's, it's like <laughs> they i mean i i don't think there's any it's not as ambiguous as a lot of his other films like halloween 3 they're, they're you know that that's like a dark ambiguous ending like oh they didn't stop it but like with they live well what are the aliens gonna do now they're screwed like it's over the war is not as ambiguous in this ending as <laughs> so all right, so so, I, so I've been trying to find like a way in for the last ten minutes. I sw- I swear, but like I want to talk about the conspiracy theorists of it. There was a really great small scale scene in Don't Look Up, which I quite liked. A lot of people that don't understand nuance seem to have a real problem with it, uh, and it's basically the. I haven't hammer. I haven't watched it yet, but we are trying to make in, <laughs> we're trying to make inroads into into David yeah. Sirota to try to get him to come on to talk. Yeah, about David Sirota and Adam McKay wrote that. Yeah, exactly. And 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 I think the people that call it yesified or whatever can fuck off forever because they're wrong. And it, that's a simpleton's understanding of the movie. But whether people like it or not, whatever. Point of fact, there's an amazing small scale scene that I think most people are going to forget about, where basically they're talking about this character who's like an Elon Musk or Jeff Bezos type, right? Where she's like, oh, I heard he built an underground bunker for him and all his executives. And someone's like, no, I heard they built an escape ship. And it was like, 
You guys, the truth is more depressing. They're not even smart enough to be as evil as you're giving them credit for. And it's one of my favorite lines because it's so true. And all these conspiracy theories, it's like, you, know, you think these people are like operating at this very high level to trick you. They're just like craven, self-involved, and they're trying to look out for themselves. It really isn't that hard to understand. See, but it's, it's, it, yeah, but it's easier to believe in that because then, it, so if 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 someone believes like, oh, they're just, in, they're, they're evil geniuses and if we just stop them, then, you know, everything yeah, will be well, fine. Yeah, well, it's easy because it's easier for them to, sure. to deal with. You know, uh, of, well, because it, there's there's a good guy and a bad guy, and you defeat yeah. the bad guy and, yeah. and you win the day, right? And and that's like the the a whole lot of folks that have like a conservative mindset never advance beyond that, never beyond, you know, never got beyond like you know the cowboys and Indians like good guy bad guy mindset, which that's very telling. But I think again, I really wanted to get in on the conspiracy theory part of you guys were just the whole time that like th that's way more true. Like I mean, like. Fact the matter is like, you know, politics is much more like Veep than House of Cards, frankly. Like it's not like, you know, it's it's much more just just ineptitude and and like self-involvement than it is like outright like evil. And and that's the worst thing about it. But what I think they live does very well using the product of its time is show the power of media to amplify voices and amplify ideas like in this case is broadcast television because right remember and the thing you have to understand and for folks that are watching this movie that are, are younger they may not get like why do they care about a tv station that was it that was the yeah. only way to talk to a large group of people like unless you had a shortwave radio you're not getting a hold of it. so the idea of like broadcast television which honestly is turned towards cable television as far as how much uh influence that it has but the influence hasn't waned it's just changed and there is an ethos that comes from uh cable television and what people on our side don't like to hear is ostensibly liberal but not progressive in any way shape or form it's corporatist liberal and that's been the case well, since what we talked about and, with the and, 90s and clinton and yeah. like the whole like you know new uh new democrat they called it right third way kind of no, mindset and, which and never left the neoliberal turn, right? Like it's the yeah, neoliberal absolutely. turn towards liberalism being kind of just a sad, uh, slightly more, slightly more, uh, it's like willing to it's discuss more female CEOs, you know, like, yeah, it's that well, and, and slightly, <laughs> and slightly more willing to discuss, uh, the welfare state in, in the sense of reforming it, which means, yeah. you know, defunding it. But still, kind of willing to be like, oh well, we believe in social security the same way FDR, you know, back in the day was like. It's the Caitlyn you know, Jenner Pepsi commercial, is what it is. Well, yeah. it's it's the same way FDR called it back in the day, you know, when he said, um, his opponents like they they like to stand up and say, we believe in social security, we believe in all of these things, but you know, turn them over to us, we won't spend a dime. You know what I mean? Like it, it's the same. It's the same way where it's. Back back in the time of the New Deal, FDR was calling it like his enemies were were saying, you know, um, turn over the welfare state to us. We can do them better. We can do them, uh, you know, you know, more efficiently, and it won't cost anybody a dime. That's not how it works. That's not how a state that actually cares about its citizenry works. That's not how a uh, you know that cares about class works. It's literally, um, it, it's just the draining of the welfare state. And FDR called it from the day that he set it up to, you know, the Clinton era, where it's like, you know, you can you can talk about Social Security all you want if your plan is uh, reforming Social Security, reforming the welfare state, welfare reform, like, 
It's just a draining of funds. Well, and so, so for us, this goes back to a point that I've made many times. I don't know if it's on this show or not, that like if anybody ostensibly on the left or, or believing in the fact that like cops have gone too far and they're doing racist action, all cops are bastards, et cetera, et cetera. If anyone really believe that, the thing you do is you talk about police reform. You don't talk about defund the police because that's poor framing. What it is is catharsis. So you can have catharsis or you can have results one or the other. And there's a model for this. And you don't have to like the results or the actions of what the model was created for to understand how this works. Yeah. Oh, I don't want to use weasel language. Well, would you rather get something done and use some weasel language? Or would you rather just feel good shouting something? And that's well, what it comes I think, down to. I think, I think defund the police is police reform. I mean, the, the no, it isn't. It isn't. It's called defund police. People think that it doesn't make any sense whether, whether they believe it or not. They think it means no money to the police. That's what they yeah, think. No, but it doesn't I mean, matter. What it's I'm a saying is, what I'm saying is on, a, on a policy on a policy level. I, I but no, really, what I'm saying just, is it doesn't policy. Nobody gives a fine fuck about policy. People care about how something makes them feel. Defund the police makes them scared. So you call it police reform and do the same shit. That's all you need to do. Solved. Done. And we didn't do that. And ostensibly, the ostensible we, as far as someone that believes that police is overly well, militarized that's the first hand examples but like we, to achieve that goal you got to think it doesn't feel really good get... to shout police reform though it doesn't feel good to shout that we i mean we didn't the, all right so this is, we could just dedicate a whole podcast to my feelings well but the, the, but, but like it, the thing is nobody understands language we didn't get a chance <laughs> to we we didn't get a chance to uh even even make the case for that because joe biden is mr i'm gonna give more money to the police guy you know what I mean? Well, like they, because because so, people thought that the definition of defund the police was to give no money whatsoever to the police and leave cities unguarded. No, it was. And it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. You can sit. No, no, you can sit. There, you can sit there and like fuck with the definition all you want. That is what the poll tested. Are people dumb? Yes. Is that stupid? Absolutely. That's what people thought. And so that's why they were like, ah, this is not popular. Let's run against this. And that way we can have a sister soldier moment or whatever the hell Carville suggests. You know, I listen, I, I agree with the second part of it, that people are now running against it. But I, I also think that it didn't really get a chance to even be put in front of people until uh, corporate <laughs> Democrats re redefined the, the meaning of it. I don't think that necessarily. There's no I'm redefinition. Not, not, it's a terrible phrase. Like it's it's look, read Lakoff. I'm not, I'm not dedicated like, to what's, any. What's I'm better? Dedicated to what's, any what's better? What's better? Uh, it, it seemed pro-life better or saying anti-choice? Which better? Anti-choice is, is better than... Yeah, it's better language, right? So again, if you talk about police reform or defund the police, which do you I'm think... Not, listen, I don't, I'm, not, I'm not dedicated to any slogan. The problem that I have with the slogan police reform... And listen, if somebody had come with the same policy set and said this is police reform, I would be 100% on board with it. Absolutely, the problem is that you get you get someone like Eric Adams uh, running on police reform, whose definition of police reform is these tiny little maneuvers that don't actually do anything because he is by definition yeah, it's kabuki. It's kabuki, right? It, yeah. is, it doesn't mean anything. No, it, it doesn't do it's anything. Hard, it's yeah. hard to you know any any like if 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 progressive candidates did run on police reform, I would 100% support that that phrasing of it. it, it I mean, I don't, I'm not, I'm not. I'm not stuck on defund the police as a thing. It works better for me. Right, but a lot of people are. Police, and, and including I, well, people uh, that are viewers of the show. Police so abolition, that's, that's which I think is the dumbest fucking way you can put it. 
police have because no, you know, that's just like the keep yourself in the dick instead. Are never yeah. are never going to go for that, which is the thing that we said on fucking give them an argument, which was incredibly unpopular. You know what I mean? Like people are like, oh, you don't stand for police abolition. No, because that is not the way to put that. <laughs> I think, uh, yeah, I, I mean, I get where Conan's coming from because um, I'm going to correct you on air because you did it twice. Conan, not Conan. Uh, I'm sorry. Conan. Thank you. Uh, I did, yeah, don't I, worry. I, I did it to Fran- Fran- did it Francesca. I, I, I feel like a jerk, habit. but uh, <laughs> now, I was going to say, uh, I think a lot of times you just have to meet people where they're at. So like. I mean, there's a few people in Pittsburgh that I know and and work with on like, um, you know, um, reform of like uh, U.S. foreign policy, military budgeting, stuff like that. Like like people that are concerned about the militarization um, of America. Right. But it's difficult to talk. I actually didn't know that you were I didn't know that you were based out of Pittsburgh and like my best friend lives there. I should come visit both of you guys. By the way, I love Pittsburgh and and have played Pittsburgh way more than Philadelphia because I think it's a far superior city. But there you go. The best city in the world. (laughs) What what I was going to say is so, you know, sometimes you have to meet people where they're at. So if you have views that are like pro peace or anti war, uh, there's going to be a lot of people that like are like, oh, what do you mean? We need a strong defense force. And, you know, I found that, you know, my way with meeting those people at times is to play to their like anger over higher taxes. I'm like, well, do you want the defense budget to be so high? Sure. You have to meet people where they're at, though. And, and I think that's what uh, you're saying. Well, you're you're right because and and so what you're talking about is coming from a place of curiosity, right? Like you'd yeah. be like, Well, what what's important to you? Well, here's the deal no matter if you agree with me or not, that we shouldn't be waging wars against these, you know, whatever brown people of the day is who we're targeting. Fact is, this costs a lot of money, money that we could be used to fix these goddamn roads, like make sure that you have, you and your family have healthcare, so on and so on. Like, those are things that get people listening, which is one of the reasons the Sanders campaign had such salience. And the fact that, the fact that so many people that ostensibly agree with uh you know folks such as ourselves like you know viewers of the show like don't understand that it's okay to not a hundred percent agree with every part of someone's lifestyle to actually form a coalition with them it's a problem and and it's a problem if you want to advance power if you want to just yell shit and like be the most popular person on twitter yelling about shit or whatever great that's on you, you know? But if you want to actually advance power, you need to understand how language works. And to be honest, the right wing runs circles around the ostensible American left. And I say ostensible because there really is no American left. It's a coalition of assholes all fucking sniping at each other. But like, I think the problem is that if you have, if you have some knowledge of how language works and how people react to emotion rather than facts, like the whole idea, oh, well, they'll fact attack them. Doesn't matter at all. Nobody gives a damn about your facts. They're going to be like, Ah, untrusted source of information. Access list drop. Which is uh you can you can tell really well if you look at a history of um anti-imperialism and imperialism from the time of like like Stephen Kinzer wrote that wrote like a really good book with the true flag, which is like, you know, um there's been a lot of times throughout our history where Americans have been ostensibly kind of isolationist and have kind of believed, hey. We need to not really go into World War One. We need to not really go into World War Two. They were, you know, until somebody kind of either fabricated Vietnam too, like until somebody kind of fabricated a, a story about like a, a battleship getting blown up or kind of a, uh, I mean, Gulf of Pearl Harbor wasn't 
Pearl yeah, Harbor wasn't tough. fabricated. Yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? Like Pearl Harbor, like, but but still, like an attack happens on American soil, and then everyone is gung ho about going into a, a different country, right? Like these these isolationist and anti imperialist moments don't really last that long once emotions kind of kick up. It's like you know, whether whether you want to believe the conspiracy about FDR uh, knowing ahead of, I don't believe it, but about FDR knowing at the time that something like Pearl Harbor was going to happen. I, I mean, and, I do and, kind of believe it with I do kind of believe it with 9-11 that the Bush administration, um, not that they orchestrated it, but I do believe that they kind of knew ahead of time that maybe there was going to be some kind of attack on American soil. And they didn't uh, act in the way that you would if you really wanted to protect, uh, a, you know, a number of landmarks from being destroyed. So ultimately, at the core of it, I'm a musician and. Part of being a musician means that there's a certain amount of people that are artistic, but they trend a, a little bit more towards Wait, artistic or art. No, <laughs> frankly, both. Uh, the <laughs> that trend towards like libertarianism, right? That, that are more like they're good people, but they have like some you know just get out of my business mindsets. Now, some of these same people were for marriage equality well before Gavin Newsom started marrying people in, in San Francisco, well before that was in the zeitgeist. But they were more coming at from perspective of, I don't care, as long as they have gay divorce too, who gives a shit? Like, which is fucking hilarious. And I agree with that because they didn't think, but the thing is, there were so many people like, well, no, no, we need to have part of marriage equality is to say that it's marriage, this and that. Which, for me, come from perspective of someone that's, abjectly secular humanist non-religiosity uh, perspective. I'm like, why? Why does that matter? Why don't you look at it as an equal rights issue? Because if you take care of it as an equal rights issue, then that takes care of like 17 other arguments that we haven't even understood yet. At that time, that would have been like trans rights, so on and so on. This is like 15, 16 years ago, right? Yeah. And, and the problem is that people are like, well, no, we need gay marriage. We need gay marriage now. I'm like, well, yeah, but it's a, it's a matter of equality. Right. So if you if you take care of the equality, everything else kind of comes in in the package. Maybe someone's not shouting the correct phrase, but there's plenty of people that don't believe a single thing you believe economically or maybe even foreign policy style that believe in that. So why don't we actually achieve well, some equality? Gay, mar gay marriage is is good economically. Like, so absolutely it is. Are you fucking kidding several, me? Like, like that's that's the thing about kind of having a, a um uh, social liberal policy like is that it's that's that's why economic. sorry to interrupt but like that that's why i was for marijuana legalization even though i don't actually give a flying fuck about marijuana because i'm like this is gonna bring in so much money that we can use to like all these great social programs and like fixing the roads like, and, like, carpenter is gonna make so many more fucking good John Carpenter's gonna have so many more epiphanies and make so many more cool movies like is it not... doesn't matter if i specifically benefit from it like that's a communal investment that's like there shouldn't be prohibition of that whether i like it personally or not i want it it's funny play... because uh I think this whole conversation loops back into they live, especially with the, uh, you know, you have the the image up of of the billboards. You know, oh, I could, I didn't do that enough by mentioning John Carpenter's smoking. Well, what, what what I was what I was going to say like, is the like, man likes to smoke. The the um the images that you see in the movie, uh, without the glasses on, they're colorful and they're about hitting that sort of reptile emotion brain, right? You know, uh. Like the, well, the, the famous, a perfect, uh, perfect example is uh the the garbage truck says "danger right yeah. turn" on it, which right. I thought was fucking amazing. Like even even his non glasses mediated imagery has like the danger right turn 
don't <laughs> don't go this way. Well, it's it's like when he puts the glasses on though, it's it's sort of taking out all the uh it's stripping all the uh like uh, emotional manipulation away of the advertising, you know. And I, I think that's an interesting point. People are more affected by emotions than, you know, uh well, my facts, you know. So and I think the movie touches on Which that. Which is in a the weird exact way. problem with the fucking Carter administration, right? Like, <laughs> whether you think that what, like, Car some of what Carter was trying to do was righteous or not. I mean, John Carpenter seems to. Like, it, it, it ends up being like these, you know, like a hundred points to hit on this one issue, and that's like kind of the beginning of this like Hillary Clinton uh, mentality of policy, where it's like instead of someone like FDR who was willing to just be like listen, something like Social Security, everybody gets it. It starts being these means-tested um, 100 points on, on this issue. Uh, oh, different, wait, like, wait, wait a second. You're blaming means-testing on Jimmy Carter? No, I'm not blaming means-testing <laughs> means on Jimmy Carter. I'm just saying universal programs work better than kind of like a, yeah. you know, a targeted 100-point thing, which I, I don't know. I, I just... Listen, I've been listening to the Matt Chrisman uh, Hell of Presidents thing at the same time. So, yeah, hearing... Give him the show so I can yell at him, by the way. Go ahead. <laughs> well, he came on. He came on, give them an argument, and yell at Ben. And it made Ben feel I'll, awkward. I'll, I'll, I'll yell at Ben and Matt. I don't give a fuck. Go ahead. It, it would be fun to... It would. It, that would be an amazing episode. Just you yelling at both Matt Chrisman and Ben Burgess. <laughs> I love both of those dudes, but I have so much I want to yell at them about um like i'll put yeah, it on the list i'm gonna let's try it. to make a let's try to make a future <laughs> when my when my not working for them an argument anymore is a little less awkward let's try to make a future uh conan yells it <laughs> conan that, yells that's it. how we met i was i was yelling at burgess about a, a freaking a trial of the uh chicago seven right <laughs> yeah so this is anyway, whatever that's it, that, that, that. back in your point sorry this is my last clip i want to play and this is the one that i have to say dot 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 as a filmmaker um you know i i felt uh you know i haven't done too much of that lately but as a filmmaker i feel um very inspired by john carpenter as a figure and i i wanted to play this as our last clip because we've kind of gone over a lot of different things and this is him talking about um like how he kept this film very very bare budgeting and how he felt like he realized that through this film um, the one thing that he would never compromise is his own vision. And I fucking love that. I fucking love that so much. He's like, a goddamn as, badass, as, man. Carpenter is, he's rad. So I, I felt, I felt like inspired as fuck last night watching this, but here we go. <laughs> and it comes out like this. So, uh, well, fuck you. I'll do it in my own movie. So I did. <laughs> What's your problem? Cindy King designed an alien, not an alien. Look, you saw them in black and white, except at the very end. They had uh, sort of metallic eyes. And they, were, they looked alien, you know. And they were, they were simple to do. We had one mask, and I have to reveal to you that only one actor played all the aliens. That's the stuntman, Jeff Amata. Everyone, male and female. I've got one that can see. A deal was put together with Alive Films, Universal, and Carol Co. Alive Films handled the supplementary market. 
Universal was domestic and Carolco was foreign distributors. And they were so low budget, everybody won. So it was perfect for me. And I had Final Cut and I agreed to make them for very little money. All the sex and violence on the screen has gone too far for me. Filmmakers like George Barrow and John Carpenter have to show some restraint. One of the things I learned in film school is that you have to fight for some things that are really important to you. And one of the things that I decided, I learned, was that my vision is worth fighting for. I just want to say very quickly, I love that bit in the movie at the end where the no independent thought thing comes up. And uh, and uh, what is it the the guy on the TV says... Uh, Oh, these Carpenter films, these Romero films. You know, yeah, he, yeah, yeah. yeah. Does, uh, yeah. <laughs> because that was a big thing in the 80s. They're not taking any responsibility. Yeah, exactly. That, that was yeah. a big thing, though. A lot of films were, were like attacked uh, for existing, you know. Sure. By people like this, all the sex and violence and Joe Lieberman. Yep. This, all the sex and violence on screen has gone too far for me. Filmmakers like George Romero and John Carpenter have to show some restraint. Which is which, which is a pretty great internal callback, frankly, because it's sort of parody in something he was actually dealing with, and I think that's fantastic. And it's also I, I, it's also uh, it's also Big Dick John Carpenter, like he, you know what I mean? Like he's putting himself on the same level as George Romero, who is at this point, I mean, you know, has created. I would say Carpenter's uh, probably like more well regarded now than Romero is. I mean, no, a hundred percent now. But I'm saying, like, you know, this is this is in the '80s. Uh, you know, George A. Romero would come out with Night of the Living Dead, yeah. Dawn of the Dead, Day of the Have Dead. Like, them? He had killed yeah. it with those fucking movies. And no, respect so the flex. Himself, Let's be clear, respect the flex. Yeah. So putting yeah. so putting himself on that level, I think, um, is it, it kind of is a flex on John Carpenter's part. But it has played out in the long run, right? Like Halloween is like the fucking classic. The thing is seen as like one of the best fucking you know sci-fi movies of all time. They lit like all of these movies are seen now, but it's it is funny like to write yourself in the script to be like, listen, me, George Romero. I I, I mean was, rad. <laughs> I was gonna say I I uh I think in terms of a, as a filmmaker, I agree that he he gets very very uncompromising with his vision, especially like when he starts. I mean, even movies that are lesser Carpenter, like say Escape from L.A. Uh, I mean, he he basically made that whole film to make fun of Hollywood and how much he hates Hollywood and the restrictions well, look at, uh, he has. When look at, I mean, Hollywood. Big Trouble in Little China, right? Like, yeah. it, it, it's yeah. the same kind of. But I, at the same time, I think what people miss about Carpenter, and it, it's funny because I view Carpenter in ways it's very similar to my favorite filmmaker, my inspiration, the reason I went to film a school, he's very similar to me to Abel it's Ferrara. Quite the lead up. Okay. I, I was, well, I was, uh, yeah, I was, I, I wanted to uh, pause for a second. I had a brain fart, but, uh, you know, he, he reminds me a lot of Abel Ferrara and that a lot of people have pointed out that Ferrara who did King of New York, Bad Lieutenant is yeah. really a collaborative filmmaker. He sort of gives his actors and the people. Yeah, involved he's like, he's like a David Bowie type. He, he, yeah, yeah. But, well, he, he's you know? like, what can you give to me? Can What, what do you want to do with this role? He doesn't say like, this is what you have to do. And I mean, on some level, I think all filmmakers kind of have a, a dictatorial streak in, streak in some ways, but I think people like Carpenter and Ferrara 
understand that film is a collaborative process because based on what I've read about Carpenter, he would give leeway to actors like Donald Pleasance. Like, how do you want to do this, Donald? And that's what I find inspiring about Carpenter is he understands that film is really a collaborative process. Um, Like he brings his vision to it, but he also understands that the other players can bring their own vision to it as well. I'd argue that there are some films that are too much of a collaborative process. Like, you know, you have a, a, a lot more watered down. Um, I mean, even like the MCU, like it's never one person kind of making a decision. It's like a, a room full of people being like, yeah, but is this really yeah, going to play the studio? I'm talking about uh, like, no, I know. Actors. I know. I'm just, I'm just yeah. saying like, but in general, like, you know, I, I, I'm, it, it feels like, um, he is one of those directors. I mean, you know, there's a famous Francis Ford Coppola um, thing in Heart in Heart of Darkness, like the, the documentary about, uh, you know, making Apocalypse Now, where he says, you know, he felt like filmmaking was the, the last, or, you know, being a director was the last kind of dictatorial role, like in a democratized society. Uh, film direct, which I don't agree with, you know, in terms of the rest of society, because there's tons of dictatorial roles, but he felt like in a democratized society, film directing is the last dictatorial role that somebody could have. He's like, you, the, the film director is the last, is the last dictator. <laughs> so, you know, looking at kind of this, this new Hollywood system of filmmaking, um, which is what, you know, John Carpenter is operating out of as well. Like it's, uh, you, you can, you can see either you kind of see yourself as a dictator see yourself as someone kind of in charge of everything or you see yourself as a collaborative partner and it felt like um even in halloween uh you know he had he had deborah hill his his wife at the time as the unsung deborah hill right yeah talked about at length on that episode um he but he had deborah hill as a collaborative partner like you know on top of having rest of the cast like it, it it kind of it kind of feels like uh he sees himself in a very different way than a lot of um like Scorsese or he doesn't come uh, out of the Hollywood brat pack in yeah. other words like the Spielberg Schrader all those guys he's kind of in his own category he's kind of in the smoke weed and hang out category <laughs> anyway uh you know tying it full full well to letterboxed one-liners Conan Neutron the man definitely the put the sunglasses on for this yeah <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. So, as everybody now knows, avid fans of the show will uh, will will notice and remember. Real, that real, heads, real heads will know. <laughs> real heads will know that Letterbox is a place for film, is a social media site for lovers of uh, cinema, movies, film, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, to track, rate, review, and discuss uh, movies of different kinds. I, uh, it's a great service. It's a service that. This show was on Movie Extravaganza, which is ostensibly just Forrest. Uh, myself, Conan Neutron. I don't, I don't, I don't like that you do that because it makes me feel like <laughs> you're just throwing me to the, in case I have a bad take. It makes you feel like you're just throwing me to the wolves. But yeah, look, I need to insulate myself in case you say like a word that Twitter doesn't like or something, right? Uh, <laughs> Conan Neutron, myself, I'm probably the most heavy user of the bunch of us. Uh, poor little uh, for our homie J. Andrew World, yeah, who, you uh, fucking <laughs> right uh matthew film guy lots of us are in letterboxd it's a it's a place to not just track what you want to see but what you have seen 
one of the nice things about it being a bottom up democracy is you get all the stuff from the, the hoi polloi. It's not just like your your modern day Suskels and Eberts. This is everybody gets the chance to, to weigh in. One of the nicer things about it is also people have a tendency to take what they've learned from social media and give terse renderings, sometimes very funny as one liners for different reviews of the movies that they like watch show or touch. By the way, I have to, I have to um, point out my friend pointed this out to me in they live the guy at the end of it. That's like, uh, that's like, Oh, well I don't really like all the sex and violence is a parody of Siskel and Ebert. It's that a hundred percent. Siskel yeah. specifically. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, like, 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 which is which is very real, very, very real. Right? It, it remind that reminds me of the scene in Gremlins two where they kill Leonard Malton for giving a bad review <laughs> to Gremlins, <laughs> which is, which is an astounding story in of itself. But it's not the intro to this bit, which is the letterbox one liners for They Live. Let's go, Forest. Roddy Piper and Keith David fight in the alley for like forty five minutes. <laughs> Where's the lie? That's nine volt. Rowdy puts his sunglasses on. Sees the world for what it is, takes them off and says, it figures, which is a deeply fucked response, but it feels real. It feels earned. I felt that. I have to, like, I have to, I have to point this out, though. He says it figures when it's the Reagan. It's when it's Reagan on TV that's giving his uh, morning in America. Morning in America. Yeah, yeah specifically. Which is, but... which is fucking amazing. Yeah, yeah. It, 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 it's yeah, is there ambiguity at all. There's not. Ham fisted, you fucking bet, baby. Four exclamation points. Subtly is simply for chumps when we're talking about revealing what we already know but can't articulate. Also, Roddy Piper gets thrown out of a window and a garbage truck. What the hell else could you want from a movie, you sick freak? Five no, question marks. It's it's a hundred percent true. Like there, there's a lot about the society we live in that's you know that you know but can't articulate, and the fact that these glasses kind of um these glasses kind of make that apparent is like whether it's half history or not. Like I, I think this is an amazing review. I, 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 yes, that's why I picked it. Every time I watch this movie, the fight gets five minutes longer. <laughs> <laughs> that's Patrick Klebeck for that. <laughs> I don't know why nobody wants to put on the sunglasses. I fucking love putting on sunglasses. I am with you. Jordan, did you write this one? I know that's my alias. That's my, uh, that's my, what do they call it? Sock puppet account, right? <laughs> my centrist friend asked, why doesn't he just put on the glasses during the fight scene? Like I haven't been trying to make him wear them for years. That's lagger. I thought that one would take me. No, that, that one's amazing. It's real. Roddy Piper's character is a real one. Discovers a secret ruling class of aliens and he just instantly brings a shotgun into a bank and starts killing them. Starts killing them. Sorry, I was laughing too hard on that one. They live, they laugh, they love. Have you Those ever uh, have you ever have you ever seen the shining? There's a shining meme and the, the kid from the shining he's writing he's writing live, laugh, love on the That's astounding. I love it. I love it. The alley <laughs> fight is the most accurate description of an online argument I have ever seen. <laughs> That one, I, I probably lost my shit out of that one for at least a few minutes because, yeah. This is potentially my favorite mullet movie. Potentially. We'll see. We'll see how it works out. <laughs> well, there, there's a lot of mullet movies in the 80s. There are. Anyway, these are the letterbox one And we're going to fully, fully, you know, go through that rabbit hole next <laughs> month. <when we laughs> Apparently do we will. Yes. 
<laughs> These are the Letterbox one-liners. Letterbox is the place for film. Follow Moving Night Extravaganza on Letterbox. Follow myself, Kona Neutron, Janja World, all of the lovely guests and co-hosts and just hangers-on of this show uh, because you are all geniuses and beautiful and we love you. <laughs> Conan's time to really show appreciation for the people on on Letterboxd. That's great. I, I, I legitimately like being on that site, which is more I can say for literally any other social media. <laughs> yeah, my, 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 Take of that my what you will. Maybe that's review, a Conan problem. My 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 letterbox review of this movie was um was all right. Well, I wouldn't need to have uh, sunglasses on to explain to you why Reaganism was bullshit. But you know, I'm glad people are waking up. That was that was that was my that was my version of it. And I, I to be fair, anybody on the show does not preemptively no matter how great it is doesn't get included in into this bit no, I, I also I, I, but but, not, but that was good and there's I'm another one like, at all i was like that would have been included uh, i also i i threw in because i actually never review they live on letterbox as much as i've seen it like you know at least a dozen times but i said i'm giving you a choice either watch this movie or start eating that trash can yeah, I feel pretty good about that. Hey, I don't normally do one-liners, right? I have been eating from that trash can the whole time. <laughs> I, I should have kept my name as well. It's called ideology. <laughs> it's so good. So, but like, th but that's that's the thing. Like, I mean, I'm not a one-liner dude on Letterbox, but I enjoy the form, right? So, like, I've been getting I, I more like this. That. I've been getting more in that mold because I just think a lot of movies. I'm like, well, I'm going to talk about them on here. Like, I review movies that I'm going to talk about on here, so I'm like, a one-liner isn't bad because I'll give yeah, my... Yeah, it don't, doesn't take that much effort. You're not sitting there writing, like, a, a freaking essay question and answer to something, right? You know, it's great. I do not write the answered question to nothing. <laughs> anyway, we're going to go to final thoughts. Let me hear from J.G. Michael from the, you know, esteemed uh, Parallax Views podcast about your final thoughts on this film okay well first off i just want to say uh i i love the uh letterbox one-liners segment now I, I i uh don't think it gets praised enough so uh final thoughts though um i love the dancing too um but final thoughts i would rank they live very highly within my favorite carpenter films um, and I think it's an interesting film because it, it's funny. I think people say, oh, it's ham-fisted or, uh, you know, it's not subtle. But, you know, I think what makes genre films great, and I um, I know Aline Jones has talked about this and, and others, but, you know, genre films can communicate things to a wide audience. And, you know, in a way, I like that they live maybe takes a quote-unquote ham-fisted approach because, you know, it's a movie that's trying to communicate ideas. It's not trying to obfuscate or drown itself in ambiguity. Uh, Carpenter has a message he wants to send you uh, while also entertaining you. And I think if that's what the film set out to do, which it is, I would say it's a two-thumbs-up film. <laughs> so I think it's one of Carpenter's uh, biggest achievements right up there with um, Escape from New York and uh, 
just any other num uh, endless number of films he's done over the years. Oddly enough, I think I would rank this more highly than uh, I, I love Halloween, but I like They Live and Escape from New York and Prince of Darkness uh, probably the most and, and The Thing. Those are like my top four and then maybe Halloween. So They Live is definitely up there for me. Nice. All right. Conan, what do you see with those glasses? Tell us your final thoughts. The sunglasses are down, everybody. So first of all, I love ham. And I think that that is, you know, is it ham-fisted? Sure. But I agree with all of the points that uh, J.G. Michael made. I think that this is so devastatingly effective that it's not just sparking discussion, but really rowdy, active discussions. How many years later? That's amazing. And it's amazing the fact that, like, if you take all that away, if you take a young man that just likes sci-fi crap, right, and you're sitting there, like, you know, being impatient for the first, you know, 35 minutes or whatever, it's still a great movie. Like, this movie works. And it stars Rowdy Roddy Piper. Noted thespian Rowdy Roddy Piper. Right? Amazing. And he's great in it. Freaking Keith David's awesome in it. And it's, like, purple tank top. You know, fantastic. Everyone is like awesome at it. And this is Meg one of Foster. The... Meg, exactly. Let's not, the, let's eyes. not to... the eyes. I always call her the eyes. She is the eyes. Yes. Uh, the, uh, the, the thing with this movie that works so well is that it takes something that's ultimately a 50s sci-fi concept and places it firmly in what was the zeitgeist of the 80s in a way that was not being questioned or discussed before, but did in such a way that's still poignant still makes sense, still works all these years later, which in a way says more to the discredit of our society than anything else. But here's the point of fact. This is still a very deeply entertaining movie. Like, every one of the one-liners that they have in the movie are like, just like, what? Like, where did you come up with that from? Fantastic, but it works. And so it works on that level you can appreciate it where you like shout it to your friends when something funny happens or whatever. It works in the way of like deep political commentary where you have, uh, you know, uh, Zizak uh, still eating that trash can. It works in the level of the fact that like, what a this, bummer. I have, feeling, I have this feeling that Zizak would have been eating from that trash can, whether or not it was <laughs> ideology. But, you know, I mean. It works in the level of like, what a fantastic bummer ending of all time capped with a completely gratuitous person having sex with an alien scene. Amazing. <laughs> Amazing. There's no reason. Literally, to just, literally just putting it at the end of the movie. Just put it like... at the end. Like, like just to remind the viewer that they're watching, like, you know, they're watching the film and like to like, think about the and also reminding people that porn is still kind of a media creation. Absolutely. Yeah. So, and the last point I have to make for it is that, like, ultimately, there would not be a thing like Adbusters without something like they live. Like, the, and like, take of that what you will, because Adbusters ultimately failed, other than to spark the idea behind the Occupy movement. But there has been real societal and political change that has happened because of they live. Has it unspooled those same problems from, you know, the year that it was made? No, absolutely not. But we're still asking the questions, and, the, and it makes it all the more annoying when all these Q idiots like tried to come on the facile elements of it and, and make it seem less. Cause this is a fantastic film. Every time I see it, I actually like it a little more. Yeah. All right. I, I have come to chew bubble gum and kick ass 
and I'm all out of bubble gum. Down the dump. Down the dump.